Welcome to Mount Vigil. I'm Anthony. In this episode, Blaine and I continue our story of God series by talking about the fall. Or more accurately, the falls. The falls of mankind and the falls of the powers. We take a survey of the three big problems, sin, death, and spiritual rebellion, and the three big sources of corruption that shape our lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But don't worry, we end on a note of encouragement. We hope you enjoy. I'm excited for today's conversation because when I gave our friend Josh a ride into town this morning, he's lending his car to another friend and I think living by foot and bike for the foreseeable future, so well done Josh. I told him what we were talking about today and how one of the topics in question is a perennial issue for me, which is the relationship between the flesh and the spirit. And when I asked him how it worked, he said, I don't know. <laughs> My, all I know is that the flesh is everything that will not endure the fire of God <laughs> or, and therefore be a part of the age to come. Like, that's good. That's kind of, there's a name that I can't remember right now for that kind of story-driven definition of a thing. Suffice it to say, I'm really excited for our conversation today in part because my own flesh is dying in a unique way right now. It's about time. <laughs> I've been waiting for this day, waiting for those words. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is that I'm sure that there's a very real sense in which that's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Other people's lives are very easy to read often. Not, not like in a vein, I can tell what people are thinking kind of way because I can't. But sometimes the stakes for people who are not me feel much more clear. Whereas, like, I would never be able to say before the last kind of couple months of conversation how much a desire for money has driven my decision-making and vision of a good future for the last decade. Mm -hmm. I just did not think that was true until Jesus began a season of setting the kingdom of God at odds with money, making them, it, nothing clarifies the issue, like making two things that did not seem different to me, like opposite ends of a choice. Hmm. Yeah, there's a reason that such a huge number of Bible verses and teachings of Jesus and New Testament specifically verses appeals to our own commitments to money and wealth and how we steward those things and their eternal impact the decisions that we make in regard to them having eternal impact. The Bible is profoundly economically concerned. I think that before long here, we need to have a specifically money-focused episode, nerding out a bit into theory of money production, the ethics of money production, the biblical references to money throughout the whole story, why I've literally never heard a single person reference this, or in a single book, and I've read thousands of them, uh, read a single reference to the verse in Genesis 2, where it's talking about the geography of Eden, and it says, and the gold in that land was good. And you're like, every word of this entire section of the scripture, most of all, is so important. It's so heavy laden with setting the foundations for the rest of the story, the, the themes that will continue throughout. So why, why are we talking about gold here from the get-go? Anyways, what you're talking about in terms of it can feel easy to read other people's stories or at least to see their sin more than your own at times. 
I think at times that's completely not the case. But there's this really interesting quality of life together. I've thought about it a lot over the years because of how much I live life with other people in a very life-on-life way, and just increasingly so over time. The quality of life that is, man, I see your sin so well. Everyone that's married deals with this, or that has real friendships that go on for a long time and, and that are actually invested in life together and not just going to the movies or something where you can avoid this kind of encounter, but encountering another person's sin. Over and over when I deal with this, you know, maybe I'll experience resentment or frustration or impatience or, or just kind of bemusement. But then regardless, at, at some point in years of life together, I'll just feel this knee-jerk, incredible urge to want to fix it. I have to deal with that person's sin. And of course, sometimes the Holy Spirit does lead us to call it out in a loving way. But mostly it seems like, and maybe it feels like mostly just because of how much I died in my own flesh in response to this, I feel God say, no, <laughs> you don't get to talk about that. You don't get to fix it. You haven't prayed. You have to pray for this person. And then like three years later, one year later, a week later, they, with their own relationship with God, do some moment of confession in the community or just talk about, man, I just, I didn't realize I was struggling with this and God totally freed me of this. So I feel like so much of the Christian life together is being affected by other people's sin. Like there's a real cost to that. Um, you don't have to deal with other people's sin if you're alone. But then the work in a big way is just praying for them. Dude, let's go with this because I see now, and this is not in our outline. That if we're going to have a conversation about the nature of evil in the world and its history and its narrative trajectory, I think we would do well to clear the table a bit and disentangle as far as we can from our enmeshedness with that story, which would look like three things, a little, a little forgiveness, a little warfare, and a little uh, forsaking the world. It was like, all right, to entertain this conversation rightly, let's just first uh, go ahead and bring the work of Jesus between us and the kingdom of darkness. Uh, the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus does all kinds of very important things for our relationship with embodied evil, personified evil. And so it's just, all right, Jesus, give us clear minds. We bring the work of Jesus Christ between us and the kingdom of darkness, death, violence, despair, hatred, oppression, and accusation, and every foul power. St. Patrick called these every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. And we cut off, we claim the cross of Christ to disarm every claim that the enemy is making on us. And we command a revelation of Jesus before the kingdom of darkness to cut it off, to disarm it at the boundaries of our lives, minds, hearts, households. And Jesus, so that we can talk about the flesh, uh, we also in short order in a blanket way, forgive all offenses against us and repent for holding on to them. 
the ones that we know and that we don't know, we release everyone from the debts that we have refused to cancel. We forgive the theorists and the politicians, the spouses and the children and the friends. Maybe there are some coming to mind here. It will help in a blanket way to release all debts, to go ahead and jubilee your relational world. I count the cross of Christ as sufficient, and I forgive all things. I, there is no claim against any person that I choose to hold against them. Release them. I receive the blood of Christ to cover my relational world again. And then the last really quick one would just be, in Jesus, I admit that I have a complicated relationship with the world, with the system of salvation that is opposed to Jesus, at least one of the systems of salvation. I have a complicated relationship with politics and with money and with the self, and I want to leave the world, God. I want life as it was meant to be lived. I ask you to save me, to draw me out, because getting free from the world is not something a person really can do for themselves. I can tell you, it takes Jesus reaching in, as it says in Deuteronomy, and taking a nation out of a nation. So Jesus, save me from the world today. I ask to be drawn out of the chaotic system of evil that I live my life in. That's good. It's a nice way to clear the decks before we get into this conversation. And yeah, so to be clear, this episode is our continuation of the conversation on the story of God. Last time we talked about creation, Eden, and today we're talking about the fall. Some subsets under that large categorization, the fall, we have sin, death, spiritual warfare, the world, the enemy, the flesh. And just to be more ambitious, we're going to, at least at a high level, talk about how the fall is actually the falls, that there are multiple falls or an ongoing, uh, somewhat progressive sense of the fall happening, working its way out through the story of God, through the Bible and in our own lives. Yeah, man. One way that I framed this conversation was with the question, what is the problem right now? There is an enormous pressure exerting itself against humanity and against your heart. What is the nature of that pressure. I've talked with many people recently who are not having the best year of their life, who are experiencing, you know, some form usually of long-term heavy opposition, a headwind to joy. What's the nature of that headwind? Well, it has a story in the Bible, and we're going to go there. So something about the answer to the question, what is the problem? Why are we suffering? Why am I failing to live up to the image of God, to, to love God, to love others? Why am I entangled in the brokenness of the world? Uh, something about the answer to that question begins in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and Eve's conversation with a serpent. Yeah, and, who's that serpent, Anthony? Yeah. Well, and just like it's a... It's a major what-the-heck-is-going-on moment. It's a fair question. It's a fair response to this answer to say you're completely crazy. Looking around in the world and seeing wars happening and seeing people oppressing each other and destroying themselves and not loving God and all the things. It could seem completely insane to say 
this ancient mythological, but not in a way that means it's not true, story of a snake talking to a woman in a garden thousands and thousands of years ago has something to do with this. Uh, it's a crazy, preposterous idea. And yet, the text is so dense with wisdom and insight and in relevance that we're convinced is profoundly relevant to this conversation. A talking snake in a garden. Step one in making this make sense is to realize that this snake isn't just a snake. This isn't, um, this isn't some tribal, we're looking around for scary animals in the forest around us. We have a fear of snakes because they're poisonous, so we're going to put that animal in the place of the bad guy who brings sin into the world. No, there's, there's something much more coherent going on here, um, even though that kind of telling could also be true or helpful. Well, which is to say that the material and the real, the material and the spiritual, which together create the real, do interact. So if someone says snakes live in holes, that you know unites them to a certain extent with the realm of the dead in the human psyche may be a part of it, but is not itself the entire story. And I had more than one very intelligent PhD theologian professor at that time tell me that the snake was not the same as the dragon in the book of Revelation or any of the embodiments of evil. It was just a snake, just being snaky, you know? Was it really bad or was it just kind of asking questions? And this was a person who was shaping the imaginations of, you know, several decades of aspiring Christian students and then wondering at widespread apostasy. But, Anthony, what are the clues in the text on the nature of that snake? Because even if you know that Eden is the dwelling place of the gods, that something spiritual is going on here, that that's probably the Satan, there are so many layers in the text itself to flesh that out. Mm. Well, first of all, I'll just, I will just say that story hits home, and it's the reason why I'm always amazed when someone comes out of divinity school or some biblical studies type of degree and still is a faithful Christian, still is allegiant to God and believes that the stories are true. Um, it's, a, it's a sad state that these educational institutions lead so many people to, to abandon their faith. Um, well, because that's what they're designed to do. And, so, <laughs> and because that's not, how the, that's not how people become commissioned stewards of the story. It happens in communities of churches with elders and family structure and, and the laying on of hands and the commissioning, not you know, going to an academic institution and you know, playing that game to try and become a professor. We've probably said this line before, but you know the one. Your system is perfectly designed to get the result that you're getting. Always bears repeating. <laughs> so the snake. There are other biblical references to anthropomorphic snakes in the Bible, and starting there will actually help us come back to Genesis and understand what's happening. And interestingly, those references aren't just bad. So it's not like every talking snake is a bad guy. And... Isaiah 6 is a great place to understand what we're talking about here. So Isaiah 6 begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were snakes, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So most of the time, it won't say snakes. It will say seraphim. Which is a transliteration, not a translation. Just so everyone knows. Absolutely. It's, in other words, it's a fake word. <laughs> yes. It's interpreters getting around the weirdness of this passage and avoiding it by saying seraphim. And when the word seraphim comes up two more times in the book of Isaiah, it's translated as snake. It's what the word means. So the reason they call it seraphim in this case is to make you not freak out when you picture snakes with six wings and feet flying above God's throne and worshiping him. So seraphim are Isaiah's depiction of the snake-like cherubim that are the throne guardians around God's throne. To start with the conclusion, the snake in the garden is actually a rebellious seraphim slash cherubim who has decided to try and overthrow God, who has decided to try and become the Most High God, who has abandoned his place and become sinful, and decided to disrupt the story of God by leading humankind away. We can move backwards and sort of unpack that and defend that position, but it's helpful to say, like, this is what we're about to tell you. It's really fascinating to look at the depiction and nature of these spiritual creatures that exist in the Bible and in the surrounding context. Now, you just said seraphim slash cherubim. That's a way of talking about the fact that different creatures are depicted having the same job. It's the job that distinguishes the kind of spirit or the rank of the spirit. So if you were to look at something like the gates of Babylon, you would see these two massive cherubim in front of the city. They are the guardian creatures of the thrones of gods and kings. If you look at most depictions of Nebuchadnezzar II, who's Nebuchadnezzar the Conqueror. Well, I guess they both are. But he's the one who deports Judah, or the Judahite elite. He's usually depicted with a cherubim, a cherubim behind him, and a guardian of a man who's identified as a depraved god-king. If you were to track over to Egypt, for example, and look for a creature playing that same role, you would find the winged snake, the seraph. And you can look up, and it's amazing. These are actually a very popular item on Etsy. Uh, There is a winged snake necklace that Pharaoh would have in addition to... There are so many snake demonic images associated with pharaohs of the 18th and 19th dynasties, like the hat that Pharaoh wears is shaped like a cobra's hood, making him... With the snake coming out of the forehead. With the snake coming out of the front. And he's also wearing this uh, throne guardian creature around his neck because Pharaoh is a hypostasis of a god. Which one? Well, it depends what dynasty you're in and which god is ascendant at that time in the Egyptian pantheon. But these creatures that are doing the same thing are both described doing that thing in the story of the Bible. That's right. And so often I think as we try to map out the different kinds of spiritual beings that the scriptures describe, seraphim and cherubim often get categorized as different, as completely different things. 
And we're arguing that pretty much every depiction of an angelic being that has wings, that has some sort of animal face, and that is near the throne of God is serving the same role, is serving God in the same way as a throne guardian. And cherubim and seraphim are just cherubim, cherubim means, well, it really depends. I don't think anyone really knows, but one thing you could say is it means living ones. Yeah, the four living creatures is but Yeah, but like you man, said. when you really look into the arguments, it's like, who knows? Who knows what exactly it means? Maybe someone actually has answered this, and I'm too influenced by all the arguing scholars. Because there's a lot of things that we know, but then if you read the wrong scholars, you know, you're going to feel like we know nothing. Because, again, going back to academia, to keep the machine running, we have to argue about stuff so we have papers to write. Um, anyways, let's say it means living ones. Regardless, cherubim are throne guardians. And there's more reason to say, looking at some of the passages that refer to this being, that they, are, they can be or are part of the divine council. So they are Elohim, they are lower G gods who serve Yahweh and counsel him and administrate the, the holy mountain where he resides. Give us one of those passages. We referenced this last episode, I believe, but let's go ahead and reread Ezekiel 28, the lament for Tyre. Just as a reminder, the first half of the passage is Ezekiel's is the word of Yahweh to Ezekiel condemning the king of Tyre who wants to become a god. And then it's, it switches subjects, and the second half parallels that, but becomes a, a lament about this rebellious cherubim, we're going to say the serpent in the garden, who wants to become the most high god. So the king wants to become a god, the god wants to become the most high god. Starting in verse 11, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Woof. <laughs> Woof? I mean, that's, that, that's a heck of a condemnation. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's relevant in there? Well, one, I'm always, this is only relevant for my imaginative visualization of the serpent in the garden. But with all these jewels being inset on him, I just picture not only a snake, a talking snake with wings and feet who flies, but also whose scales are like beautiful shining jewels. Just something completely radiant and lovely. Yes, because we're saying 
that it's a seraphim, which is one of the, that the creature in chapter three of the book of Genesis is a throne guardian, which is sometimes called a seraph, sometimes called a cherub, because there he's called a guardian cherub. However, you don't get the word cherub or seraph in Genesis 3, you get nakash. And nakash means a lot of things. It means it's related to the word for to shine or shining one. It's related to the word for divination or having an out of order relationship with the movements of the stars and with esoteric and secret knowledge. So the clues that you get when it's snake-like, that gives you a, oh, okay, maybe we're dealing with a powerful and high-ranking spiritual creature. But, and the fact that it's talking to Adam and Eve, but, you know, actually just to Eve, in the garden is a clue that here in the dwelling place of the gods, one of the Elohim is moving through to have a conversation. And then the word there gives you these other layers of clues of this is a spiritual creature, a ranking spiritual creature that is really interestingly falling in real time. And Ezekiel and later in the biblical text, they're going to tell you what happened, how pride and perhaps envy in response to God's nature bloomed and were responded to and were chosen in the heart of the evil one. It's beyond interesting. It's really important that you get to see the action happen. It's not like, how, how does the enemy fall? And, you know, as we all know, most of us have imaginations that are shaped by a pre-material creation war in heaven, except that the chapter that describes that in Revelation takes place or corresponds to the birth of Jesus is happening. There is war in heaven at the incarnation. Oh my gosh. Well, where did, where did the original and archetypical spiritual rebel fall right here? And how did he do it? Well, he can't win against God. So he goes to try to wound God by seducing, dominating, destroying, deceiving his creation, starting with its appointed ruler's humanity. Mm. This passage, Genesis 3, feels so different when you let go of the pre-Genesis 3, war in heaven, and this is all just the, the aftermath. When you let go of that and you realize, as I read about this serpent, this seraph, deceiving Eve, and then Adam, this whole domino of brokenness, that this is it happening. And it's helpful to realize that simultaneously people and the seraph are falling together. Realizing that's a thing is helpful when we look into subsequent falls later in the text. It is. And man, I'll tell you that in response to the times that I've been most hurt by people, and failed most deeply myself, I've become seasonally really, really obsessed with the origin of evil and wanted to know who's to blame, right? What is going on? 
And I'm telling you, it will just do wonders for your view of the world to see it the way it is. And one of the ways that it is, is they are falling together, but in the one-two punch, the originator of evil, Milton, who gets so much wrong, gets this right in a conversation between Michael and the devil, where Michael calls the devil the author of evil, the original rebel and goat. Yes, human beings do plenty of harm on their own, but they were not the players who brought evil into the story. That was the spiritual rebel. Now, humanity, you will see, does not get off the hook for its own failure, but to know that the ultimate enemy is not humanity, is not even a thing inside humanity like sin or the flesh that you can kind of segment and oppose, but is in fact the ultimate enemy is this, is the Satan and his kingdom of darkness. It's just really helpful when you deal with people who are themselves fallen in a world that is still in bondage to death. Hmm. Yeah, I too have been kind of obsessing over what really is the root cause? What's the nature of sin, of evil, uh, of brokenness, of iniquity? Like, where does this come from? Why is this part of the story? I've been honestly obsessing over this since I was a boy, and I first read the scriptures, and all the questions come to you that, that have come to uh, all the rabbis who first were interacting with these stories, and then the church fathers, and and everyone, everyone that has to engage with the Christian story, whether they believe it or not, ask this question. Why, why is there this tree in the garden? Did God put it there as a test? If God created everything, why does evil exist at all? I think meditating on some of these passages is extremely helpful. We're not going to give the definitive answer to questions that have haunted pretty much all of humankind, but especially people that have engaged with this book, the book of Genesis, for thousands of years, we're not going to say, oh, well, it's this. But I think there is insight, there is wisdom to gain from meditating on these questions. It says something important about the nature of sin, that there's not really a good answer. So when Ezekiel 28 says of the serpent in the garden, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And then your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. There's no more explanation of evil than that. And to me, there's a parallel between the fall of this cherub and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And that is, God created them, gave them everything they need, and was already sharing his nature with them. And the nature of the fall was to try and take for oneself in a way that breaks relationship that which God was generously going to give anyways, or had already given. So this cherub, the one that shows up as the snake in the garden, already was a god, already dwelt on the holy mountain, already got to counsel the Most High God, creator of all. He already shared so much of the divine nature that he himself could be called a god. And yet he decided that he had to become the Most High God. Karl Barth has a lot of interesting doctrine of what exactly is sin, where does it come from? And it's basically nothing. Like, it, it, it doesn't come from anywhere. It simply is a rejection. Oh, man. I'm not going to give Karl Barth's answer to this question because it's, it's pretty deep and 
I haven't done enough reading, but he gives some hints anyways into the idea that sin is nothing. It emerges from nowhere. There's no reason why the cherub did this. And there's every reason to look at God and love him and to be grateful for what he shares with us. So Eve, in the garden, is promised that she would become like God if she took the fruit. Let's just read the actual temptation of the serpent. So Genesis 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The tragedy, the irony of this moment is that Adam and Eve, as we talked about in the last episode, were put in the garden to become God's idols, to be the, the creatures that could image God in creation and administrate the beautiful, cultivated, life-giving situation that was Eden throughout the rest of creation. And they, I, I think the reason that tree was there, at least symbolically, is that they were actually destined to become more mature and become more like God through executing the Edenic mandate. And that everything that they stole for themselves before they were ready by eating of this fruit would have been given to them in God's good time. And so the root of the fall is taking for oneself what God would have given anyways, was giving in the right way, in a way that breaks relationship with God. And I, I think there's a similar relationship to that between, between the, the rebellious cherub and Ezekiel, who simply became proud. Both of these stories might say that pride, if pride is ultimately trying to be like God in a way that is out of order, when the destiny of mankind is to become like God through theosis, you could just sit and meditate on this for a very long time. I want to return briefly to an important idea for all of you, which is that The application of the scientific method to stories leads to nihilism, period. And so what you were riffing on, what Karl Barth riffs on, what Pope John Paul II riffs on at length, this, the origin of sin question, when I have found that the the very insistent on these base issues asking why is a, a defense mechanism to avoid grief and lament and doing those things in the presence of God because what humanity wants the answer to be at the end and thinks it can back God into a corner is because God rigged it. And you, and you see this, you see free free actors getting off the hook all the time by a paper that circulates on Facebook. And it goes, psychologists show 
that it's a human impulse to blank, and that explains why people cut you off on the road. And you go, oh, it wasn't that that person made a decision. In fact, decision-making occurs in the unconscious part of the brain. And so what was really at fault was an untouchable, unseeable way the universe is, so it's God's fault. Now, stories don't work that way. You know what the story tells you, which is that God, who is wonderful, generated a universe of generosity and passion and adventure and collaboration. And we know the answer. I just think we don't like it very much, which is that he made creatures free. I, th I hope we've all heard it and know that freedom is real. This is Kierkegaard's tautological reflection, getting to something very deep. We're free, but we're only free. And he, you know, who passed through, to, passed through despair to a kind of hope, had to grapple with that. Love requires freedom. Freedom is real. And so sometimes people do horrible things with their freedom. And sometimes you can't trace it beyond a root of that's what they did. And so when someone asks me, you know, why are you so miserly with your money? I could tell a story about things in my family system growing up that helped shape that behavior. And those are partially true. Those are things that need to be addressed. We're born into a world that, that is saturated with deformity and evil. However, when I'm you know, explaining to people, I get to a point where I go, yeah, and that really affected the way, and I chose blank. And there's nothing beyond that, which is where repentance and needing the nature of Christ comes in, which is I didn't choose to shut my wife's heart down when she wanted to buy an expensive garden bench and I just threw the veto switch. I didn't do that because a force outside of me dominated my behavior. Now, I, I have been shaped by the world that I live in, thus the need for the spiritual disciplines to change the nature of my habits and the, the reactionary patterns of my body but I also just did that. And that's why I apologize and repent and take hold of the work of Christ. So when you're looking at, but someone who's pounding their fist and going, but why, but why? And I'm going, you're not asking that question. You're not. You're asking, where are you, God? Can you get through to me? Is there hope for me? Will you hold me? somebody help me. Those questions have satisfying answers because God will get through to you and you can experience him and he'll hold you and restore all things. But the insistence on choosing a scientific, a scientist salvation strategy over the salvation of Jesus is that you'll be left with nothing. I love this point and I feel like it is an extreme bonus of this episode to get into the subject of a scientific approach to knowledge 
and the path of wisdom. These two options that you're laying out. And you're reminding me of a song I wrote a long time ago uh, called Easterners. Basically comparing, I'm describing it as an Eastern way of, of knowledge of wisdom compared to a Western one. And the first verse goes, read my words to reveal my heart. You turn them into a logic chart. That's not the way I mean. Why ask why? That's a child's mind. Let me tell you a story so you see the light. I like to tell stories. Science is a limited way, makes a very poor religion, and it's bound to change. There's other ways to see. Yeah, those Easterners got it right. Anyways, I think it's worth repeating, it's worth developing the idea that the goal is to become wise. I was literally having a conversation, like a fantastic conversation about this yesterday, of course, at the coffee shop with this young woman that is visiting town from New York to act in some play here in town. And we got into a surprisingly deep discussion almost instantaneously on kind of all the questions of like, how do you know what's best? What's the way forward in life? And so on. And the encouragement I was putting out is exactly this, that a scientific way of moving forward into questions and meaning of right and wrong, of the things that matter, only leads one to nihilism because it doesn't answer those questions. And it can only try and invalidate them. If you enter into the story, the path of narrative, the path of reading the story and just chewing on it for a long time in all the places of dissonance, of anxiety, of frustration, being where the gold is, where the meat is, and chewing on that for a long time, sucking the marrow out of those bones, uh, that is at least part of the answer to how does one become wise. And becoming wise being what you actually need. So my, my closing comment on, on that would be when you discover that a guardian cherub whose existence was glorious, who was loved by God, rebelled into an unimaginable depth of evil, you really should mourn. Kids get this right when they cry, when sad things happen, not when they try to escape by putting on the detective hat and scouring for the details. And if you've ever walked through the loss of a family member, I'm telling you, you're gonna see, you're gonna see these two impulses. Someone who mourns and therefore recovers because the response to evil is this, that is terrible. I need to receive the comfort of God in this wound. And then there are some people who will go, who will, will gnaw the bone of why did this happen forever, not to engage reality, but to break reality apart and just sift through the unmeaningful pieces. So here we are. The cherub fell, seduced, or didn't even, I mean, it must have been hard, but you got to say, humanity is depicted with an incredible degree of frankness here. You know, Adam standing silent beside Eve while she engages demonic evil. She falls. Adam chooses Eve over God. Then they, oh my gosh, everything you said about taking out of order what God was freely giving. Living with joy into God's universe is a real option. So is choosing resentment. I mean, have you ever watched someone struggling to forgive and you're like, oh my gosh, 
You could choose to release this person or you could choose to not. And I really hope you choose to release them because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. But man, this actually is up to you. This is a choice you can make. The last point I want to make about the serpent in the garden here is it is supremely helpful to pay attention to the enemy's rhetorical strategy and exactly how he goes about tempting Adam and Eve away from faithfulness to God. And words like Hegelian dialectic, which comes up a lot in this podcast, obviously, uh, ideas like apophatic theology, quote unquote, which I think is simply applying Hegelian dialectics to theological concepts in a way that annihilates everything. I'm very anti-apophatic theology, at least in the way it's applied by people these days. So apophatic theology being something like these games with words that actually undo all of creation. And it's like holding someone's hand and they walk you into a dark place and then let go of you. And suddenly you're just stuck in the void. Here's an example. Uh, God is good. God is beyond good. God is not good. That's an actual apophatic haiku, so to speak, that people apply as some way to become wise. So you can see Hegel. Of course, this is Hegel as he's passed down to us with this super simplified, probably wrong idea of like a very basic dialectic of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Anyways, whether or not it's accurate for a Hegelian scholar is irrelevant because it's accurate in terms of how the world works. If you pay very close attention to the enemy's rhetorical strategy, exactly how he goes about putting an idea in the form of a question in Eve's mind and then uh, using her response and to progress the conversation to this place of rebel against God, you see it all over the place. It's, once you see it, you can't unsee it, and it's something that you want to be, what's the opposite of being inured to? It's something that you want to be sensitive to in the messages of the world and false gospels that come at you in the lies of the enemy as he tries to tempt you away from, from your closeness to God. It comes in the voice of your own flesh, of the voice of the world, and the voice of the enemy. Oh, this, the debasing of meaning and confidence that is the goal of this form of inquiry. Uh, I read a line once that there are some things that are easy to identify and impossible to define. And, which is helpful, you know, like love is easy to identify and point to, but, you know, endlessly fun if you engage it from a positive sense to explore, but you can't bake down into a definition that's laughable. Well, this kind of undermining, it's the way that the anti-theology of cults works, like Mormonism, which uh, one of the opening evangelistic techniques of this branch of pseudo-theology is, do you know God's name? And I've never, I haven't bumped into a person who's tried that, or a Jehovah's Witness, for example, who's tried that recently. The answer is, yes, I do, because God tells you. Uh, <laughs> and, but this kind of, yes, but look, and maybe, and maybe everything you thought is wrong, do? And, and that kind of, uh, you'll, you'll feel people do this sometimes when what they're trying to do, 
Dallas Willard has a great line where he goes, academics are brilliant at asking a question that's, def- that's designed to reduce the conversation to nothing. And Who said this? That's Dallas Willard. Willard? Oh, man, that's so insightful. That's, it's Wittgenstein, the philosopher. But what does the, what does the word is mean? And, but he asked it in an even brilliantly rhetorical way when he was asked a question, and he said, it depends what you think is, is. And I went, oh, you <laughs> are an aspiring magician pl- practicing with the different destructive powers of humanity. Watch the heck out. And also, man, the enemy can do this in your internal world. And as you said, when you are sensitive to it and you just realize there's no exit to that labyrinth of death. You, lo- you do learn to resist going into it. One of the ways you can know that you are caught in this kind of conversation, whether it be with the enemy, your flesh, or the world, is that it only goes to death, destruction, nihilism, nothingness. If that's the fruit, you're probably caught in a... <laughs> I wouldn't turn seraphim into an adjective. You're probably caught in a serpent-like rhetorical loop. You're probably caught in a Hegelian dialectic loop that zeroes out into nothingness. As a helpful point to bring this into the world today, this is the nature, this kind of downward spiral into nothingness or death and destruction is the nature of critical, add your word to the word critical, capital C, critical theory, whether it be critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical legal theory, which was the first critical theory. Some of them are flipped, like new historical criticism. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much if the word critical, it is this kind of nihilistic path into the void. Now, this isn't to say, this isn't to defend any other political stance that might seem like the opposite of people who push forward critical theories into all the spheres of life. It's not like, oh, well, these guys are anti-critical theory, therefore they're Republicans or something like that. Not the case, actually. But I think critical discussions and interrogations only lead to death and destruction, and it's not the path into wisdom, into the kingdom of God. Yeah, and by the way, the opponents of the kingdom of God, including people who are choosing to be on the wrong side, they do know this. There's a widely celebrated book uh, by a philosopher of consciousness, Douglas Hofstadter, I'm a Strange Loop, Oh, yeah, that's a dark book, man. So dark. That book started really... Mostly I feel like I'm immune to the books I read and I can just kind of let them do their thing and then think about it. That one was not good for me at the time that I was reading it. (laughs) I know. So it it takes the philosophy of selfhood and and personal loss. And the way he gets out of it is looking at, isn't it amazing how just everything leads around... Everything leads in a big circle back to itself. No beginning, no end. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're trying to destroy not just yourself, but now me and maybe ultimately the world. There's another highly relevant uh, Dallas Willard quote, this one from The Renovation of the Heart, where he goes, in beginning to destroy humanity, the enemy did not hit Eve with a stick, but with an idea. Oh, <laughs> with a question. Yeah. With an innocent little question. With an innocent little question. Did he? You can sense you're applying black magic, the power of the will to fragment to humanity right now. And by the way, leaving this 
I'll tell you, it is extreme self-discipline and learning the real jujitsu way of Jesus to not get baited this way and to either be silent or to ask, what are you after? Or to call it out. The, when Dallas Willard writes about this, he then observes Jesus is unmatched in his ability to get through the, to do the impossible, to get through the defenses in response to this kind of question. And so one of the examples is, you know, when the, when he's asked the who is my neighbor question before the story of the good terrorist, that question, who is my neighbor, is just defined, designed in the context of that interaction to be like, yeah, but I mean, who can, can we really answer who I'm accountable to? And Jesus turning from the interlocutor to the audience tells this story, gives this powerful narrative. You cannot argue against it here is the neighbor, which is the person who responds in love to the world via the way of Jesus is the one who knows who his neighbor is. The other great example of how Jesus deals with this rhetorical strategy of the enemy is obviously Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. You see the exact same rhetorical method being deployed by the enemy, who is called, I think, in Matthew, both the devil, the tempter, and the Satan in this one passage, which is pretty helpful to realize they're all put together in this moment. But, of course, the enemy, the devil, the tempter, the Satan, asks questions very similar to the one he asks in the garden. This is assuming it's the same being, which I'm obviously putting my cards on the table and saying I think it is. Uh, This being, this tempting, accusing, slandering being comes to Jesus during his fast in the desert and asks questions, referring to what God said. Did God say this? Well, isn't it like this? And, of course, Jesus' response, the way that he dismantles the enemy's arguments is to simply quote back other, other instances of the Word of God, other passages. This is another moment worth meditating on. Enemy asks a question, quoting God, and puts it in a certain light that is intended to dismantle, to deconstruct one's trust in God. Jesus responds with other biblical passages that refute the enemy and preserves his fidelity to his father. And then finally, once he's done with the game, Jesus says, be gone. This is a helpful template for us as we deal with our own spiritual oppression. So we can't move on from Genesis 3. So we can't move on from Genesis 3 without discussing the curses. I will intro this subject by making an important distinction that I don't hear made enough. To me, it's always been meaningful that in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, that God never explicitly curses Adam and Eve. Now, most people, because this isn't a cursing passage, talk about the pain of childbearing and the the fruitlessness and futility of stewarding the earth as being curses. But in terms of the language, the Lord God says to the serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock. And he says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. But to Adam and Eve, he simply says, these are the consequences. I've always found that to be touching. 
beyond touching, is hugely important. And even looking at the ground, I discovered several years ago, and I like to ask the question, who cursed the ground? Because Lamech, right before the birth of Noah, who's going to be a comfort to them, says that you will be a comfort to us from the ground which God cursed. So Lamech's come to think God cursed the ground to make life hard for people. If you just read what it says and then I would say, you know, unpack your concordance commentary and say, cursed is the ground because of you. The best answer to who cursed the ground, who introduced cursedness, futility into the ground Adam did by sinning. Wow. That had never crossed my mind before. And it's a great point. I love what you're saying because it further concentrates the cursing action simply on the rebellious Elohim serpent and everything else is consequences or something that we brought into the world. Thanks for the new tidbit. So God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I have a distinct memory of one of the first times I seriously engaged the story as a kid, reading the text, and immediately thinking the kind of scientific retort of, I don't think snakes eat dirt. Is this worms? I know earthworms eat dirt. Is this like the English phrase, eat dirt, punk? And just kind of like in that materialist, scientific way, trying to debate, thinking about it basically as something like the first snake was randomly there and God curses it. And now it becomes one of the most hated animals throughout the rest of history. And I don't know, just trying to figure out what it means. The point I'd like to make here, and it's one that I have not done the note-taking required to defend, so I'm going to point you to Michael Heiser and his book, The Unseen Realm, to defend this position. But I will say that the curse of the serpent is not about making snakes eat dirt, but is about sending this being to the underworld where he will become the king of the dead, the king of the underworld. And when it talks about him eating dust, it's more evocative of eating the ashes of dead bodies. <laughs> yeah, and a few ways to know that's true. One of which, maybe we'll link to one of these, is to look at an Orthodox icon of the resurrection of Jesus, many of which have Jesus and the saints coming out of, the, of this massive open fanged mouth. Mm. And go, yes, that's also where uh, the fish spitting out Jonah really ties in to the, de- the typology, the development of the theme. The other way that you know this is that there are a number of polemics, which is an oppositional speech, you know, a, a radical refutation as a polemic. Those are across the Bible that relate often to the Baal cycle, which we talked about before being unmasked in ancient or discovered in Ugarit because spirits and curses showed them where it was, but they found the temple of Baal. They found the texts inside. They found the Baal cycle and found, oh, in this story, Baal 
attempts a rebellion against God, wins, and then goes down to be the king of the dead because he wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But say, there are references across the Hebrew Bible to the, as refutations to that cycle, where you go, what are they talking about? You know, what's with the psalm, lift up your head, O ye gates? Oh, that's kind of, that's a quote of the cuneiform Baal text, where Baal's trying to organize a rebellion against God that he's going to win and then become the king of the dead. But in that one, you know, God is coming down, throwing the line at the original rebel, lift up your head. And as a formidable adversary. Wow, don't mess with Jesus. Uh, But saying those which are extra-biblical traditions help set certain verses in context that go, oh, yep, yep, Satan, he gets, he's sent down to the dead, but also he's not quite appointed. That's still usurpation as king of the dead when the psalm says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You know, eat with Psalm 139, even those who have gone down to dust will kneel before you and find you. There is this, God does not yield any part of creation to the Satan, but he is at large in it, in a cursed existence. Yeah, the phrase king of the dead is more evocative of human imagery, of imagery from other mythologies that are actually pointing to the real thing, which is Satan being sent down to, in some capacity, reside in the place of the dead. And, spoiler alert, the day between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, slash Easter, Holy Saturday, which normally gets ignored, or in Protestant traditions there might be some sort of Easter vigil that just leads into the sunrise service, that day is about the harrowing of hell. It's about when Jesus goes down to hell and takes back the keys to death from Satan. So even whatever authority or, uh, or function he served down there in the place of the dead, he loses even that when Jesus spends his time in the grave. Yeah, and really quick, just linking to two stories that validate this pattern. One, the crossing of the Reed Sea, you know, at the Exodus, where often translated as the Red Sea because the Septuagint and lost cultural pieces, but you're very familiar that it's the Reed Sea, and modern Protestant scholars have scratched their heads and said, there's no such place named in the Bible. There is a place in Egyptian, Egyptian mythology. It's the Sea of the Dead. And so, you know, it was a real body of water on earth that God split open. I have ideas about which one it may be, but it may not be as important, though it did happen, as what it stood for was the realm of the dead being broken open and God drawing a people through. This is relevant because Pharaoh was supposed to be the judge of the dead. And thus, the confidence of Pharaoh's armies to follow Israel into the Sea of the Dead. He's the king of the place. What does he get in the end? Nothing. He's allowed to be the king of the dead. To stay in the realm of the dead, that means nothing. The same thing repeats itself with Lot's wife, who you know, turns into the post of salt, which I always pictured as like a Doric column, you know, a Greek column in the middle of the desert. The word post is the word for office, like stay at, soldiers, stay at your post, which is a totally different meaning. And so Lot's wife 
who attached to the realm of demons, Sodom, and got what she wanted. She was made an officer, is another potential translation of that word, of the dead. What it meant is you get nothing. So the, the theme builds in just amazing ways throughout the biblical story. I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier, which is an Orthodox icon as being a source of theological instruction or biblical exegesis. And this is a really cool idea that many listeners might be totally unacquainted with if you come from quote-unquote Protestant, non-Catholic, Orthodox streams of Christianity. But it's really beautiful that in the Orthodox Church especially, visual iconography throughout the millennia has been a source of authoritative teaching on the scriptures. Obviously, that was super helpful when most people were illiterate, but it's also just helpful as a medium in which we can transmit biblical wisdom throughout the years. Um, And I'm glad that you reminded me of that because something that we will include in the, the show notes for this episode are a few images I found online while searching for different icons, which is something I find myself doing all the time. It hit me just like last week. The number of times that I'm inquiring into some biblical studies subject, and I think, oh, I should just go find some icons on this subject and see how that shapes my imagination. I found three images regarding the Garden of Eden that I will include in the show notes for this episode, one of which has a really interesting depiction of the snake in the garden with a snake's body, a human head, and two little wings coming out from the neck. <laughs> and it's, it, it's kind of disturbing, but also like, oh yeah, uh, artists have, have understood what was actually happening here. There's a couple depictions of that, and then one of, uh, of Eden as being a mountainous garden. It's the most beautiful, it's by Edward Cole, I believe, who is an American painter. A beautiful depiction of Eden, painted by someone whose imagination was apparently on point with the connection between mountains and the the Garden of Eden. Anyways, moving forward in the story. So we discussed the serpent's curse, and then to the woman, God says that her pain and childbearing will multiply, and pain in bringing forth children. And then her relationship with her husband will be broken, will be one in which sin taints. And to Adam, he says, because of you, the ground is cursed, and in pain you will bring food from the earth, and your work in cultivating the earth will be resisted by thorns and thistles, and you'll work hard and then die, <laughs> is basically what the judgment is there. It's important to connect these two pronouncements on Adam and Eve with the original Edenic mandate, which was to be fruitful and multiply, and to subdue the earth, to cultivate the earth. So both of those important roles, which are, in terms of the judgment here, filtered by male and female, are broken as a result of sin entering the earth. Yes, sin and death through sin. So much to say. Today, in addition to the Orthodox, the, the Catholic house of the people of God is going to get some significant shout-outs because Pope John Paul II's work on... A Theology of the Body, The Fall, Eden. There's just very little that is as good as it. And there's an introductory book to it that's called Men and Women Are from Eden. It's actually by a writer, Mary Healy. But it's just very good because 
I can tell you from the past couple weeks, Pope John Paul II is a smart dude and he's very hard to read. Like smart people can be really hard to read. In exploring the, to set up the fall, but not even set up the, the fall, you know, Pope John Paul II talks about original solitude and original unity and original nakedness. And he's like, in original solitude, the man has a self and he needs communion. Original unity introduces nuptial theology. Where we're made for self-giving love, where freedom is found in appropriate commitment. And then original nakedness is their bodies were transparent windows to the inner person. There was no danger of seeing a body as separate from the inner totality of the individual. Allah, no objectification. What happens, it's helpful to think, we've drawn multiple pictures on the board, actually, you guys, in the course of preparing for this podcast, trying to visualize the fall. I've said before that the, some of the writers of the Old Testament theological lectionary, one of them, one that I like, um, which I think is just called the theological lexicon of the Old Testament, calls the area outside the camp the sin disaster sphere. And you have to think really of like a Chernobyl, this fallout that goes in all directions. And you have what Pope John Paul II calls concupiscence, just a word that I actually really stumble over every time I try to use it. It just means strongly disordered desire. And then shame, rupture inside the human being, and then rupture with one another, and then alienation from the earth, and then which requires labor and distance from God and the realm of the divine council and the presence of death, uh, something that I learned recently that's just fascinating in terms of that original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness is that Adam and Eve, you know, they already know what evil is. Then, then they actually become deeply enmeshed with evil in a book called Con Confronting Old Testament Controversies, which I do like. Uh, Tremper Longman writes, the fruit does not represent simply the intellectual apprehension of good and evil. In that sense, they already knew <laughs> eating the fruit. By eating, they gained a different kind of knowledge, the experiential type, and evil became a part of who they were. And what do they do? Well, they treat their nakedness differently, and they make, they sew fig leaves together. This is really interesting because a few verses later, God is going to make coverings, and the juxtaposition to these things could not be more important. The fig leaves that they sew together, the Hebrew word is kagor, and it is a loincloth, and explicitly a little genital covering. And what they do is, oh my gosh, that's very significant if humanity these freedom is expressed in appropriate commitment mirrored in the body, mirrored in sexuality itself, that they shut that down in alienation from each other. Now, when God makes them close, I have seen so many illustrated Bible pictures of Adam and Eve in Stone Age tunics wandering out into the desert 
what God makes is the is kethoneth, and that word for a garment is not going to come back until a certain person gets a very fancy cloak, much to the chagrin of his brothers. It's not going to that is the only time it's going to come back again, and then it's not going to come back again until the priestly garments, the priestly garments. And so they make coverings to separate themselves from one another and to try to cover what is out of order with them. God makes these beautiful garments to provide for them and to actually lay out the template of their returned you know, eventual priestly role as beloved children that the story is going to press into. Isn't that crazy? That's so cool. I had never heard that. I love learning in the process of recording this podcast. The pronouncements on the woman and the man are much more tragic than we might realize at first. Because I think typically when we read about the woman's pain and childbearing and the man's pain and cultivating, we just think about how that applies to our own lives. Yes, my last week of work was terrible. Or, yeah, I don't want to have kids because it's going to hurt. Or whatever the way that applies to you is. It's much worse than that because these pronouncements get to the heart of what it means to be human. You could imagine a, uh, a consequence on people that didn't relate to us as specifically male and female and our reproductive capacities. But as we recall, especially from the last episode, people are made in the image of God. And the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, and their ability to create offspring is directly related to the God who created us. We image God, who is the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, in a divine, loving family by our interrelatedness and our ability to procreate. And so our ability to be beautiful idols, beautiful images of God in creation is, from the get-go, well, it's not destroyed, but it's severely hampered and broken. And so speaking a little more into that, when God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, is one translation. There's lots of translations because it's a little confusing. Your desire shall be for your husband is, I think, one of the more literal and common translations. That word for desire in this passage, the next usage of it is when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to consume you or something to that effect. So this desire is a consumptive, consuming, destructive desire. There's all kinds of ways of fleshing out exactly what this means, but it has to do with, obviously, the relationship between men and women, their relationship as it pertains to power and authority. So this consuming desire for the husband, his rulership over her. And so you see the consuming desire for the husband and the oppressive and the ruling kind of oppression, I think, is the thrust of this, of the man over the woman. A relationship that is supposed to image God in the most beautiful way, in the most incarnate way, where children are the result, and it's one of the chief ways in which people image God, is broken with sinful power dynamics. A consumptive desire of the wife for her husband, and an oppressive rulership of the husband over the wife. And if you look throughout human history and gender relations to this day, you can see the fruits of that brokenness all throughout. And yet even by the end of this chapter, there's hope. There is the prophecy to the serpent that the offspring 
of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. One more important category is introduced in this chapter, at least. I mean, pretty much in these first three chapters of Genesis, everything is introduced, but uh, I think one more for our purposes here, and that is death. And death, as you said earlier, is the consequence of sin, it's the fruit of sin. I used to picture there being a second tree. I'm always referring to how I pictured these things when I was a kid, and uh, I feel like so much of my journey in growing up in the scriptures, maturing in the scriptures, is undoing or dealing with my initial reactions to what these stories meant. As a kid, I used to imagine that there was another tree, there's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and that this tree of life must have been hidden somewhere else in the garden, and that it must have been a tree to which Adam and Eve did not have access, because if they had found it and eaten it before all of this, they would have been immortal. And it wasn't until college when a fantastic Old Testament scholar and teacher, Dr. Bulger, shout out, made the kind of obvious point that this tree is one that you have to keep coming back to and eating it. That you have to keep coming back to to eat it and benefit from its life-giving effects. It's a small nuanced distinction from the one by immortal forever, which is something that might come out of a sci-fi movie these days. One sip of the fountain of youth and you're immortal forever. Instead, it's something more, I imagine, like the manna in the desert that God provided on an ongoing basis. And I imagine there's something similar, actually, in the resurrection uh, with the tree of life on both sides of the river uh, flowing out of Jerusalem. And being sustained inside the life of God itself. It reflects so much more of what our destiny actually is to relate to God into eternity He doesn't give of himself in a way that completely separates us from needing him and experiencing union and intimacy with him into eternity. That's what this symbolizes and represents and actually is. So there was a tree of life that Adam and Eve had access to in the garden. And as long as they came back to it, they would never die. The fruit of sin, the fruit of their breaking of faith with God in the garden is that they were expelled from the garden. Before long here, we're going to have to talk about Nephilim, and there will be an interesting comparison between the consequences for the Nephilim and the consequences that were spared Adam and Eve as they were expelled from the garden here. All that to say, as a a cryptic hint, being cast out of the garden and uh, and losing access to that tree of life was one of the most merciful things God could have done in part of his salvation story. Yes, and... And I think a brilliant move the enemy did not see coming. When I see sometimes the salvation story as this unparalleled strategic showdown, the enemy is like, ha, human beings have, evil has become a part of their nature. And all of a sudden, God brilliantly snatches away immortality so they don't have to live in hell on earth. And goes, what? They can die? Well, well, now they're dead. And go, well, watch what happens over time as the, as the maneuvering between the devil who wants to destroy everything and Jesus who is committed to restoring everything works back and forth. I mean, the prologue, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, really the first 10 chapters of Genesis, so much happens that is, it's like the best cold open ever. And because you get 
the garden and then Cain and Abel and then you get Lamech and the flood and the Tower of Babel and oh and then all of a sudden whoo, you get it, you zoom in and everything slows down and you the camera would stop on the ancient city of Ur and it would be like okay we're off to the races this is what we're going to do let's do a crane shot over a crowded marketplace to find Abraham Please, no one make me this movie. I know it will be bad because <laughs> it's, it's, better, it's better in my mind. Uh, well, using that cinematography metaphor, we're going to kind of skim through as a montage the immediate consequences following their expulsion from the garden. First, you have Cain killing Abel, all that there is to say about that story. Then you have Lamech, who basically learns murder from Cain and just ups the ante and makes all kinds of curses upon himself. And then the place that we have to pause is in Genesis chapter 6, where it says in verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives, and they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The giants were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And obviously, typically, you'll see the Nephilim instead of the giants. That is another transliteration and failure to translate a word that is clearly the giants. That's what Nephilim means. It does indeed. It's also, I think it's called a mononym. So it's, it's a word that inside the Bible only occurs one time. So to figure out what it meant, they had to go to relatively contemporary ancient literature. But my daughter is learning to hike right now. She's still only five, so her stamina is limited. But we'll go to some of the places in town that are my favorite parks, my favorite rivers, and we'll be walking along. Let's say we're in 11 Mile Canyon. And I'll look up a tributary canyon and go, oh, there is the coolest thing up there. I don't think you're I don't think you could do that hike. I don't think we have time today. That's a little bit how I feel with the Nephilim and how important they are as a category and th there's there's an infinite rabbit trail here. But the reason it's important is that until St. Augustine, let's say, and I'm trusting Stephen DeYoung in the religion of the apostles here because I have not yet read the church fathers like he has. Um, but when he references them, I go find them and read everything by Irenaeus I can. The Fall, capital T, capital F, was not the original way of thinking about evil in the world. It's more like a series of catastrophes or a downward trajectory to which there is no bottom apart from the intervention of God. And the, to be like, can it, it's the whole like, oh man, well, at least it can't get worse. It can, and it will, if God does not do something. They were expelled from the garden and that's as bad as it can get. No, it's not. They figured out demonic sexual rituals to pervert humanity to its core. Well, that's as bad as it can get. No, it can get worse. It can. And... So when we, what we lose when we lump everything together in capital T, capital F, 
the fall is the actual nature and story of our situation. Capital T, capital F. It looks a little too much like math that could be unraveled with opposite math rather than a story, a set of problems that actually have to be addressed by God. And if it's a set of problems, the things that God does to address those problems make a lot more sense. When people say, like they did when I went to a Christian middle school way back in the day, Jesus lived to die. No, he didn't. But you say that because your theology and your ontology doesn't have any room, can't make sense of the life of Jesus, the Gospels themselves, which are the important part of the New Testament, not Pauline theology. And say, so like, it's not enough to go, yep, sin. Oh, and death is somehow related to sin, and we don't really know. And be like, and maybe there's a devil. But to be like, no, 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 no. There is humanity's intimate connection with evil. There is the presence of death in the world. There's demonic oppression. And then there are, there are the kind of other tab ones. There's the emergent system of human iniquity, the world. There's the Nephilim. There's human beings interfacing with foul spirits under their own destruction. And I love telling people, you know, Jesus began the final phase of the ancient war on the giants when he cast demons out of people, which was a thing that humanity thought was impossible. No one does it before Jesus enters the story. It can't be done. He rolls in, and, and at this decisive moment in salvation, you can just feel, hear the spectators gasp when they go, he can separate humanity from demonic evil. That's supposed to be impossible. What is going to happen next? So going back to the word that shows up once in scripture, which, by the way, I only know what the term for that is because I recently, in prepping for a church teaching, learned it, which is hapax legomenon. <laughs> uh, hapax, I don't know how to pronounce it. Hapax legomenon, which is a word that occurs once in the scriptures. And a metonym is a is like sting. You have one word for your whole name. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is an important clarification. <laughs> anyway, Apologies to Zendaya. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to Bono. Anyways, so you have this weird word, Nephilim, which means giants. And it's an important part of the large story that we could spend a lot more time on and probably will come back to many times throughout the course of this podcast. This is another instance of watching a fall happen. Because in the garden, we have one being, the snake, the seraphim, who falls in tempting and leading Adam and Eve astray. But then you have multiple spiritual beings reproducing with human women and creating giant offspring. Continuing this logic that we're not projecting behind the story some giant war in heaven where a third of the angels became demons or whatever it is. We're just kind of witnessing another moment of fall in which human beings and spiritual beings interact in a way that is to both of their destruction. There's a lot more behind why we're saying it this way, why we think this is what Genesis 6 refers to. A lot of it has to do with, with Second Temple literature, with scholars like, again, Michael Heiser, who we 
always referred to with Stephen DeYoung, and with Archie T. Wright, who wrote The Origin of Evil Spirits, The Reception of Genesis 6, 1-4 in Early Jewish Literature. That's a great book, by the way. If you are an extreme nerd and want to know what Second Temple people thought about this passage, read The Origin of Evil Spirits. It's a surprisingly readable book for being, I think, someone's dissertation. Anyways, so how is it that these gods, these rebellious gods, uh, come to, and they're called the sons of God, right? So members of the divine council, other Elohim, we don't know, come to rebel against God, are tempted by the desire for human women, and decide to create offspring with them. First of all, what is the technical way in which that happens, since they are spiritual beings? And second of all, why would they do that? Well, like everything the enemy does as like a large category for rebellious powers, practically everything they do, he does, is a perversion of what God does. So in this moment, you see a perverse, rebellious form of what you see when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and she becomes pregnant with the Son of God, Jesus. There's a a very dark, ersatz, rebellious, perverse version of that happening here. Ultimately, we don't really know what the mechanism is, but importantly, without going into this in great detail, we'll say that there is a lot of historical precedent for pagan peoples, for just various Mesopotamian religions, Mediterranean religions, in which the kings of the the kings of any given people group would interact in religious rituals that would unite them, whether it be through a temple prostitute, etc., through like, like a human woman who is allowing uh, a spirit to inhabit her body, uh, in which, like, through all kinds of dark means, people would invite a spiritual being into their sexual union, and that it made the human offspring of that union unique. (laughs) Think about Gilgamesh being two parts God, one part man. This has to do with the king, the god, and the woman. That's where you get weird math like that. Yeah, man. This thing, by the way, just to be clear, is alive and well. There's, the Greeks end up calling it the hieros gamas, the sacred marriage, but in contemporary Wicca, it's a thing. There's a Buddhist version of this. And this is another perverted attempt to become God, to become immortal, to get the future Look at the end of the book of Revelation, where the bride of Christ and the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? This glorious, holy, good, appropriate resolution to the story contrasted with perversion being inhabited by gods. Now, I'm going to say this goes on and also speaks to a norm in the ancient Near East. People thought this was great. The Bible corrects a lot of things. It's the definitive account of human history. So it does regularly interact with neighboring rival accounts of human history to orient people to what's going on, where people say, you know, this person figured out how to, you know, have intercourse with the serial rapist Zeus, and that was awesome. And the Bible has to go, that was not awesome. Hercules is not a good guy. And 
read through the Iliad, look at the Diomedes, look at the Aeneases, look at these people and be like, not a good idea. This is a violent corruption that is another attempt to obliterate humanity. Again, there's a long technical discussion from Michael Heiser on how this relates to the flood as a local, a regional measure to destroy the widespread knowledge of Nephilim ritual. Now, people who come afterwards, like the Babylonian king Hammurabi, brag that they figure it out, that spirits teach them the knowledge that was destroyed by the flood. But this thing is like, okay, the, in one sense, humanity makes another attempt to get on the throne of God. In another sense, there's a deeper perversion of God's design for the universe. And in a third, there, there's a, a strong basic warning against the fact that people, humans, you are, you're the amphibians of God's universe because Jesus is the ultimate union of heaven and earth. And you, as humanity, get that status now, the spiritual realm is interested in that. You create in collaboration. And guess what? There are spirits who are opposed to Christ who would love to collaborate with you unto your violent destruction. You know, and we've talked about this before and just the real story of history, where some philosophical ideas come from. Rene Descartes' tent visions, all of the, this category of things the, the Bhagavad Gita and the construction of the atomic bomb and go, these collaborations with spirits who are not allegiant to Christ unleash horrific destruction upon the world. Prometheus is not a good guy. He brings the fire not to help humanity, but to give them a power that will destroy the cosmos unless God intervenes, which he does. So summarizing the story of the Nephilim, the story of the giants, mankind sins against God by seeking union with other gods in ways that are not given to them and in ways that are in trying to become like God outside of relationship with him. And then the gods rebel against the Most High God in the exact same moment. And so in pride and rebellion, they seek to create offspring in their own image outside of the Most High God's order. As you said, this relates to the cause, why exactly God brought the flood upon the earth. I'm not sure if you're in this camp, but I'm definitely in the camp of the local flood. The local, yeah, the, the local flood. Quick little Bible study note that can help you. Well, it's apologetic actually, but also it's just helpful for your own narrative imagination. The flood is on the land. The word for the earth, the land, in this case, is Eretz. And that word does not mean the whole globe, the whole capital E, Earth, the planet. It simply means the land. And throughout much of the Old Testament, the word Eretz applies to the promised land, the covenant land, uh, the land in regards to the story and the people of God. All that to say... Right, meaning a land is often used to describe a land that has boundaries. Exactly. Not, I think, Tevil or some would be the entirety of the earth. Yes, and one, this helps in understanding the meaning of the flood in the context of this story. Two, I'm not a big fan of apologetics personally, at least in the way that I learned it in the 90s. 
<laughs> which is super combative and making pointless arguments that miss the point of the story. But it is interesting to me that there are certain geological events that happen in the record, such as we have it or can deduce, that could actually be something that happened in the Mediterranean area. So take that or leave it. Moving on to... Well, you know what? There was a movie, Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Ah, uh, dude, I thought of this movie earlier, and I didn't want to mention it because it's such trash. I, Darren Aronofsky is one of the great living geniuses of cinema. Not that I'd recommend like any movie he's made. They're all extremely dark. He is a great artistic genius, but the Noah movie, it's called Noah. It's called just Noah. Oh my gosh. Russell Crowe, great actor. Aronofsky, genius director. The movie, I couldn't get through the first 15 minutes. It was just pure artistic trash to me before I could even engage with the story. I do know a bit about it because I know about his engagement with Jewish Kabbalistic mythologies, which is what he's actually engaging with, not with the scriptures. Exactly. That movie, which it was fascinating, you know, the Western evangelical response to that movie, which was, we hated it. It was not like Sunday school. And my response was, I hated it. That was freaking brilliant and, <laughs> and darker than you know because of the number of Second Temple, you know, ancient Jewish esoteric texts that it directly related with. There's a Hermann event, meaning the members of the Divine Council coming down to earth to give knowledge to people, but it's presented in a positive light. And this, in the book of Daniel, I think is the only place that the angels are described as the watchers. So, of course, because that's kind of cool and 13-year-old boys like that. Uh, Aronofsky calls all the angelic creatures the watchers in that movie but one of the watchers is giving a story to Noah and it was like we had compassion on fallen humans and we came down and the depiction of that is these asteroids coming down which I'm like that is how they thought of it and and then it was like we told them what we knew and then they rebelled against us and I'm like yeah, again, is the demonic propaganda version of that story. And I watched that scene, and like the third or fourth YouTube comment, this was a while ago, was like, <laughs> oh, by the way, we had intercourse with human women <laughs> to create demonic offspring who would destroy the world. Touche, <laughs> uh, like, sir, touche. I was like, oh, nice, you knew that. You know, as much as YouTube comments are decried as being the low point of human relations, the ones that are at the top of the pile because they're the most liked or whatever are often incredibly hilarious or insightful. It is important to know that the Book of Enoch, which is extra-biblical text, but one that is very important for understanding the story of God and is referenced by First and I think Second Peter and, and Jude, is very important, and the term the Watchers is deployed in Enoch throughout the whole of that text. We've covered the Nephilim incident Moving on in our stories of falls, of the ongoing fall, we reach the Tower of Babel. One thing we didn't really highlight out of the Nephilim story is those offspring of the giants were called the Mighty Men. And the term Geborum, which means Mighty Men, is used in both positive and negative lights. So people like the giants, the Nephilim, and like Nimrod, who is the hunter, warrior, pagan, king, that leads the Babel project. Very negative references. David's mighty men were also called Geborim. So if you're a, a preteen, teenage boy who wants 
awesome warrior types to look up to. There are mighty men that you can want to be like, at least even those you might need to be critical about, but at least it's on the good side, quote unquote. But it's notable that they are explicitly giant slayers. Yes, the mighty men that slay the other mighty men. Yes, that the Gaborim, they slay the Gaborim. Oh, it's so uh, cool. And so we're going to get to the Tower of Babel, which is key because if you're going to look at the work of Jesus and what he does and go, uh, sometimes I think of Jay-Z's rap 99 Problems <laughs> when I think of the Salvation Project. <laughs> and I go, okay, you have a sin problem, humanity's enmeshedness with evil. You have... Uh, spiritual oppression and enmeshedness with demonic external evil covenantal darkness and you have death yeah you have death i skipped that one and then you're about to get the last problem before this the script flips and we start solutions and because the whole bible is chiastic we get the solutions in kind of a reverse order which is why after the tower of babel you immediately get abraham but say the Tower of Babel, Anthony, wasn't that just like a sky ladder? What was it? What happened? Again, distinct memories of imagining this scene and trying to imagine like, how is it possible to build a tower all the way up to space? And side note, have you ever read Ted Chiang, who wrote the collection of short stories, stories of your life and others? One of those short stories, the movie Arrival was made after. One of the stories in that book, it's early on, I forget the name of the short story, but it's in Stories of Your Life and Others. Ted Shang writes a story about the men building the Tower of Babel. And it goes all the way up into the dome of the sky. And they crack through it into this reservoir that holds the waters of the heavens. Anyways, it's an incredible short story that is so beautifully written. Ted Shang, I really, really admire that guy but it's got nothing to do with this text. Well, what we are talking about is ziggurats. It's pretty much universally agreed upon by scholars and anyone nerdy enough to dig into this, that the Tower of Babel, the thing they're building up to the sky, is this temple structure that some of which still exists, the ruins of which still exist, called ziggurats in the Mesopotamian region. Yeah, the Ur ziggurat is the one that has been rebuilt foolishly that you can actually look at pictures of or... If you or any of your friends were deployed during the war in Iraq, maybe you have a selfie in front of it, because <laughs> that's where it is. <laughs> Nimrod, this mighty man who, again, as a kid, I thought was a cool character. I was like, wait, do I want to be like this guy? He's a warrior. He's a hunter. No, you don't want to be like this guy. He is a rebellious pagan king. And the people, in the kind of mythological sense, all the people are united as one in the pursuit of building a tower that they can ascend to heaven. And the reality is something to the effect that they are seeking to manipulate the God, to elevate themselves to the status of the gods. They're building a manufactured version of the mountainous garden of Eden. They're building their own little Mount Olympus. And they want to climb to the top of that and bring down the gods and bring themselves up to that status. Yes, to make the God serve them. Because if you can get the God to come to inhabit your temple, you have to make sacrifices to it. You have to take care of it. And then it does what you want. This story, by the way, it's amazing how often this story is kind of endorsed by people building things like metaverses. Now, this is like Yuval Harari's line 
history be began when humanity invented the gods, it will end when humanity becomes gods. That is a full-on endorsing of the Tower of Babel desire where you transcend your limits. Bonhoeffer, in his notes on creation, fall, and Eden, he has this quote where he goes, sin is the passionate hatred of any limit. And Ooh. you see that here. You see, we are going to make God serve us, build our own cosmic mountain, and you will come down. And the amazing thing is that the most high God, beside whom there is no other, who was before all, goes, okay, and comes down and scatters the people and withdraws. This thing becomes a part of the Jewish imagination that we've referenced before called the dispossession of the nations, where God goes, you're so corrupt that if I'm near, you're so enmeshed with evil, you yourself will be destroyed. You're not ready to be exposed to the everlasting fire that is the presence of God, that is a good thing. So I will set at, you know, delegated officials over the nations of the world. Deuteronomy 32, I think it's verse 8, you appointed them, the nations, according to the number of the sons of God, 70 being this uh, ancient world symbolic number. There weren't just 70 nations. It was a way of talking about all the nations in the Baal cycle. El and Baal ruled together over a consort of 70 divine council members. Again, a demonic propaganda story that relates to reality in an oblique way. But the, at the end of the Tower of Babel, God has withdrawn from humanity. There's no people, no nation under the beneficent good rule of God. He begins to address that problem immediately in the very next chapter, God called to Abraham. And, but before we get to Abraham and where the, you know, where the story begins to reverse, go, Anthony, did all of those gods decide that they wanted the nation? What happened? Because that becomes a part of the fall of evil. What's going on? Well, not all the gods rebelled. We have at least one, Michael the archangel, who remained faithful to the Most High God. And we don't really know more than that in terms of what percentage of the gods actually rebelled and which ones remained in God's divine counsel and so on. But just to succinctly summarize that story so you can keep track of what we're saying, mankind unites to build a tower to create their own mountain of the gods that they can manipulate and control and own and to call down the God. And then the judgment in response to that and also the mercy, God stymies their plan and divides their languages and divides their unified pursuit of rebellion against him and assigns them the overseers of his divine counsel according to the number of the nations. So God says, instead of being united and creating your own anti-kingdom, I will divide you, scatter you across the face of the earth, and put you under the authority of my counsel, of the gods, Lord G. And then, later in the story, over time, people tempt the gods, and the gods tempt the people in worshiping them as the Most High God. And those gods 
receive that worship or desire that worship and so on, and the fall continues to work its way out. The dispossession of the nations is when the people are assigned to the gods according to the number of the nations, and then the rebellion against God's order continues as the worship that should go only to the Most High God and the pagan ritual and all the things continues this terrible working out of sin and brokenness throughout the history of mankind relating to the gods. It's such an important point. There's a motif in fantasy literature where people try to relate with spirits and then the spirits end up being too powerful and dominate them. And this has always been understood to be, I want to say always been understood, this is a common trope that relates to magicians, where this is what happens to Faust. Uh, this is all through the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Faust and Mephistopheles. So humans are like, okay, well, we don't want to serve you. So we're going to see if we can invite this other guy in and end up dominated by oppressive spiritual powers. And the number 70, hint, when we get to the sending of the 70 or the 72 in the Gospels of Jesus, is this symbolic number of all of humanity. So when the dispossession of the nations is being reversed in the work of Christ, that this, that the number of the nations in terms of apostles gets sent out to cast out demons, addressing the Nephilim problem. And that's part of humanity's problem. Part of humanity's situation is not just sin, corruption in nature, not just the presence of death, not just perverse spiritual relationships, but also domination by violent and oppressive spiritual powers. Uh, this just cracked me up where uh, in a recent election, by which I mean the last election, I heard so many segments and I tried to not hear anything at all and to not pay attention at all. Uh, but they still got through because you see, you know, you go to the coffee shop and you see the newspaper of Joe Biden saying, we are in a competition for the soul of America. And I went, that is so well said. And to go, but all of you, all of you are on one side and the people of God, the church is in a contest for the soul of these people to save them from spiritual oppression but it's not happening in the tabloids. It's happening in the invisible, liminal, the world will never acknowledge it or talk about it, life of the church. So I think we're going to jump all the way from the fall at the Tower of Babel, and you referenced this actually, all the way to the Gospel of Luke, and in sort of wrapping up our exposition of the falls section of this podcast episode. And in Luke 10, 17, this is after Jesus had sent out the 72, and now they are returning to give their report. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And this, this moment that Jesus is describing having seen, depending on how, you, on how you interpret the most easy-to-interpret book, the book of Revelation, it has more to say about this moment, perhaps. 
the last fall that we want to talk about is when, and this is where potentially some of the third of the stars in heaven, the third of the angels perhaps fall in rebellion. They were saying this with more of a light touch because there's a lot of ways to look into what these texts are about. Our best reading of the story is that the situation that we described, the Tower of Babel, the dispossession of the nations, and then their continuing adultery with the other gods in breaking relationship with Yahweh, the Most High God, is pretty much the situation you find the people in when Jesus arrives. And so when he sends out these 72, it is symbolic of his plan, of his intent to repossess the nations under his own kingship. And when he says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, perhaps, and I think there's good reason to read it this way, but you have to kind of get a little meta in connecting all the texts and reading the narrative. There's another rebellion of angels, of Elohim, of spiritual beings, of gods, in response to the incarnation of Christ, seeing the one-of-a-kind, unique Son of God, Jesus, who sits above the divine council, come down and become incarnate in the form of a human baby, and this working out over the life of Jesus on earth. So the final fall that we'll allude to is when some of the angels, perhaps a third of them, rebel in response to the revelation of the plan of God, which was hidden even from the angels. Crazy stuff. Yeah, we talked about Jude referencing a story from Second Temple literature of Michael arguing with the devil over the body of Moses and Peter talking about the descent into Tartarus and proclamation, uh, Jesus's proclamation of doom to the spirits imprisoned there. And this is another, another one of the maybes, either way you read it, very cool. However, the Satan as the accuser was sometimes connected in Jewish literature to a character, Samael, a, whose role was the opponent in the divine council. However, at the work of Christ, there's no longer, you know, there's no longer space for that role because we have Christ who stands advocating for us day and night before the throne of God. And so there's final corruption and falling of that creature. Now, the alternative would be, the, al- the alternative view, which is also cool, would be Jesus seeing a decisive turning point in the war against evil and would say if, you know, the Satan and the Diabolos, the slanderer, are all one character, then it's boom. Okay, the, the enemy's position over nations, the enemy's position of destruction has been decisively addressed, fallen like lightning from heaven. Or you can read it as one more angelic, rebellion or fall that takes place at the display of the wisdom of God does not change the situation we find ourselves in. And both versions speak to what the work of Jesus is going to systematically address. All right, so we have the narrative decline into chaos. We have the complicated situation with which Jesus is confronted when he begins the salvation project and the situation that we find ourselves in. However, our situation is not talked about in those terms 
all the time. For example, the New Testament writers have a lot to say about the world. Paul talks about the flesh versus the spirit. And we in the Protestant West are very familiar with the unholy three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These things relate directly and are a part of the story that we were talking about. So we'll dive into them. But maybe since we were just talking about the disinheritance of the nations and demonic oppression, it would be best to start with the devil in the unholy three things. Anthony, how's that work? So the term Satan means adversary. The adversary, the enemy, as being a nice bucket term for all of the spiritual forces that are opposed to God and that oppress us in their mission to bring harm to God, to destroy his creation. We've already talked about this character, the serpent in the garden. Without spending a ton of time finding all the biblical references to the term the Satan and so on, let's just kind of skim over this subject a bit. There is question as to, is there one big bad, is there one final boss, Satan, who is the being that the scriptural authors are referring to in any given text? Or are there lots of big baddies? And there are a few texts that combine in regards to, uh, it appears, one being, terms like Satan, which means adversary, the devil, which means the slanderer, the serpent. Those are often applied to the same being. And so there does seem to be, perhaps, I kind of lean towards there being one arch bad guy. There being one arch spiritual being, but it's unclear. There are so many named beings in the Old Testament. For instance, Azazel, Abaddon, many different Baals, Baal-Zabub, for instance, which is uh, one of the accusations made against Jesus. It's not really our imperative to have to figure out, are they all referring to the same spiritual being? Do we have to figure out who all the, let's say, 69 rebellious spiritual powers that were over the nations, um, or however many there are, right? Um, do we have to figure out who they are? Do they all need names? The answer is no, I think. We don't necessarily need to think about Satan as the king of all the rebellious spiritual powers. There might be multiple very powerful rebellious spiritual beings. But it is important for us to know that there are a variety of rebellious spiritual beings that can cause us harm. There are rebellious gods, the rebellious divine council, rebellious Elohim. There are rebellious unclean spirits slash demons. And to further add nuance to how this conversation proceeds, the term demons is often applied to all of the rebellious spiritual beings, so the gods and the unclean spirits. And probably the most common understanding as it comes out of Dante and wherever else into popular consciousness is that demons are fallen angels. We are going to push back hard on that idea and say that it's more nuanced than that, that there are a host, pun intended, of uh, different kinds of rebellious Elohim. By kinds, we mean ranks, Elohim that serve, that should have served God in different roles, but rebelled. And then there are demons slash unclean spirits who are the ghosts of the fallen Nephilim that we were previously referring to. I'm just trying to describe some of the territory that we can maybe further clarify here. The ghosts of the old Nephilim. <laughs> That's from that dissertation you just mentioned. The origin of evil spirits. Where this is going to become relevant is this situation, once it's been described, should 
One, cause you to feel like you're not crazy, like the experiences that you are having have names and characters, and that what you feel is going on can be interpreted, is interpreted by the story of God. You're not crazy. And then shortly after that, we, we're going to get to the question fast of, if that's true, what should I do? What should I do when the apostles would roll into places like Athens? You had people who were very aware of their situation. Man, my flesh is my problem, my pride, my envy, my anger. How can I manage that? There are spirits all over the place. How can I relate to them? And by the way, this is the ancient world, so there are always wars. What should I do about the conflict between nations? How do I relate? And the good news of Jesus was a flash of lightning to those people, as it is to us when it went, oh, Eugene Peterson, I told you this quote recently, said, it's the way of Jesus wedded to the truth of Jesus that leads to the life of Jesus. What's God up to and how is there and how do we participate is another way of framing that. How should we live in view of that, which is coming. We're still kind of scoping out, oh my gosh, a panoply, dare I say a plethora of depraved spirits of various kinds, including the spirits of old Nephilim who in another one of the prophetic polemics, rise up, the Rephaim rise up to meet the Satan as he's descending into the realm of the dead. That's just freaky deaky, man. That's like the, <laughs> that's like the Nazgul. And yes, it's like the Nazgul. However, if you are just, again, to look at the madness of the world, the, the fact that we're in the late stages of a spiritual war is a vital interpretive key. And when Jesus, our church last week, you know, we're going through Matthew, so you'll hear us talk about Matthew. It always, I just love whenever Jesus sends out his apostles and says, this is what you're supposed to go do. An apostle is someone who's sent to carry a message. Go out, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, announce the kingdom of God. There are sometimes others, but those things come up and... It sometimes shocks me that raising the dead is a command that we've been given as the followers of Jesus. But isn't it fascinating that the thing that Jesus says, like casting out demons addresses the spiritual oppression problem, healing the sick and raising the dead are both related to like the death and the iniquity of the world. Announcing the kingdom of God is drawing people back into the nation of God where they, in the complex theological terms, get to be restored by God. I love, again, going back to Pope John Paul II, he talks about the trajectory of humanity as original humanity, which you see in Genesis, fallen humanity, redeemed humanity, and glorified humanity. We, who are, the church are in the redeemed humanity part of the story on our way to glorified humanity. As weird as the idea that unclean spirits, demons in this sense, are 
the ghosts of fallen Nephilim. The narrative fidelity which it achieves in connecting so many dots throughout the scriptures has helped me a lot. There have been times, in fact, I have distinct memories of like standing outside of Accolade Gym complaining to you about this, about the arbitrariness of spiritual oppression. Where it's like, what the hell? I'm walking around and at any given moment, some demon can just kind of float through my world, can what, whisper in my ear, can uh, try to bring me harm, try to lead me astray. Like, why? Talking to a friend and they say like, man, last night I had this really spiritually oppressive dream and it was scary. And I had to wake up and do a lot of uh, asking God for restoration out of the trauma of that dream or whatever. And it just felt so arbitrary and so like it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't connect. It doesn't have any narrative coherence. And it would just really exhaust me being frustrated about that. It's not that it satisfies any scientific justification of why things are the way they are. But for me, it helps a lot that this story connects the whole biblical narrative. And it actually helps me understand the nature of salvation better, the nature of sainthood better, for instance. And something about narrative coherence reduces dissonance, reduces cognitive dissonance in my own mind. It makes it easier to live out the story of God. And so just to connect some of these threads, we talked about how Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and lost access to the tree of life. The reason that was a mercy, at least one of the reasons, is that demons give us a picture of what mankind in rebellion against God, but enjoying a form of immortality, is like. So in other words, my belief is that Adam and Eve, if they had retained access to the tree of life, would have become demons effectively. Uh, just imagine in all the horror movies like a, a Dracula, the horror of a being that can live forever and corrupt forever on the face of the earth. So in that sense, being cast out and being subject to death was actually a mercy. Also, this story about the giants, the Nephilim in Genesis, isn't just a random pre-modern person put some local tribal story into the text, an editor just dropped it in there for no reason, and it has nothing to do with anything else, and suddenly there are demons and they have nothing to do with anything else. Rather, the consequence of mankind's rebellion against God in participation with the fallen gods continues to remain on the earth today. So the idea is that the offspring of human kings and concubines or whatever interfacing with rebellious gods, producing the giants, the mighty men, the Nephilim, that those beings, because of their, their weird status, their weird level of being, having partly divine heritage, when they died, their spirits remained on the earth and continue to haunt the earth to this day. And this makes more sense just to add little tidbits of narrative coherence to the verses in the New Testament that refer to these beings as unclean spirits. Because in Jewish culture, unclean meant mixed. So you couldn't mix this with that, two kinds of fibers, or there's many examples in the law. And so uncleanness is a matter of mixing things that don't belong together. And that's what happens when you produce a Nephilim, when you produce a giant, you're mixing spiritual beings with human beings in a way that perverts God's intent. So unclean spirits, that makes more sense. And then why are they possessing human bodies when they do? Well, they're ghosts haunting the earth and they're disembodied and just look to your lexicon of campfire stories and horror stories and monster stories and so on. And intuitively, it'll just kind of make more sense to you that way. And by the way, not just kings and female cult prostitutes. 
great high priestesses and male cult prostitutes, yeah. which also get named in the kingdom books, and the good reformist kings get rid of them. But what are they in the background doing? Different versions of demonic rituals. Your, that conversation in front of Accolade, the answer to that conversation is in observing the unholy alliance between the world and the whole kingdom of darkness, all of the depraved, rebellious spiritual powers, and everything in the flesh. And, you know, something that I think more and more is you were saying, well, I can just back then, walk down the street and all of a sudden I'm experiencing spiritual warfare, which is an experience that I do have and a frustration that I have. And one of my, my answer to that is becoming more nuanced. The way that I think about that, because it has like, how is my imagination shaped by the work of Jesus? What am I doing on the earth that I would relate to the world, the flesh and the devil? And the other one being, how am I living that that actually wouldn't happen all that often? How much of my life is characterized by the kinds of things that Jesus did that I am extremely unreactive, extremely resilient, that I can get strafed by the spiritual atmosphere of a witch walking by and it's no big deal. I'm like, oh man, Jesus, I pray you deliver that person. But I want to talk about the two, I think, shiftiest, hardest categories to grasp, at least for me, which are the world and the flesh. The flesh, especially in Paul's letters, is a thing in his imagination. And the world in the general epistles, you know, the Jameses and the Johns and the Peters, not the major Pauline letters, the world gets major attention. You cannot miss. They want you to know what this is. But I think, honestly, that most of us don't. I mean, all the way back to talking with Josh on the way in, who's a very well-read, thinking person who loves God and who loves God. And his answer, like my answer, um, what's the relationship between the flesh and the spirit was, um, I don't totally know. And then he had some good answers, so... Which of those do you want to tackle first, Ant-Man? Do we want to do the world, or do we want to do the flesh? Let's go after the flesh, because my current reading of the world is more of an emergent property that's partly comprised of many fleshes of the human beings out there. So let's start with the, the single unit. Not to make it that simplistic, but that's just one way that I look at the world. Maybe we could come back and defend that or tear it apart. Because you've been very instructive to me on the topic of the flesh. I'm going to hit you with two quotes that are really interesting. One from John Paul II, the other from Dallas Willard. And they're really interesting. What John Paul II has sort of turned me on to recently is that Paul does use the flesh to describe more than one thing. And so he says, here's the quote uh, from an essay, Opposition Between Flesh and Spirit. The works of the flesh are understood in the Pauline text, both in the general and in the specific sense. All sins are an expression of life according to the flesh, which is contrasted with life according to the spirit. 
which maybe we'll get into that there's an emergent quality and a specific quality, the specific relating to the body. And then here's Dallas Willard. Flesh in the biblical usage is not the same thing as the body. My little commentary on Dallas Willard would be all the time. Back to Dallas Willard. It is merely the natural powers of a human being based in the human body. In Galatians 5, Paul described the deeds of the flesh when natural human impulses and abilities are allowed to be the rule of life. But flesh is not the sinful nature as it is sometimes translated. Trusting in the flesh is sinful. Which is why in Philippians 3, Paul gives examples of nice flesh that he sets aside in order to rely upon Christ. In the final analysis, it is true that, quote, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but the flesh and blood person can. That nuance is very important. I've read it in Willard before, and he's very opposed to Gnostic Christianity that wholesale tries to make the body bad. That's where a lot of our notorious harshing on sex in general, our notorious judgments of sex, the world sees Christianity as being anti-sex or anti-body. That's only true if you're a Gnostic Christian, whether intentionally or through bad teaching and a bad reading of the scriptures. So it is important to have nuance on all these things. Nothing is super simple and straightforward in regards to these big, heavy-duty theological concepts. Nonetheless, it has been very helpful for me in my imagination of what is the flesh, and in reading Paul specifically and all of his references to it. To begin with a childlike reading of these passages, because if we miss the basic obvious things he's saying, then we don't have a framework to which to apply nuance. The nuance of, well, the flesh is just the body, and God loves the human body and wants to resurrect it and, and decides to dwell inside of it, and sex is good and all the things. Uh, so here's my current imagination of the flesh. I am fallen. When I encounter Jesus and become allegiant to him and declare that he is Lord and, and have faith in him, which is allegiance to him, I am saved. I get to enjoy his life. And through my baptism, I enter into the waters of death and am resurrected with Christ. And I am given the Holy Spirit, the seal of my salvation. And yet, my physical body has not died yet and been resurrected. And so I still have a body of unresurrected flesh. Now, that body is not evil in and of itself, but inasmuch as the flesh, the body, my passions, my disordered desires, and so on, the, the part of me that is not fully resurrected except in faith, inasmuch as that part of me steers the ship, I am living in sin and headed to death. My flesh, on its own power, is incapable of bringing about life and is constantly buffeted by everything, the world, the enemy, its own disordered desires and passions, even just the principle of death in the world. So it's not that my body is evil in some Gnostic sense, but that I am designed to be led by the spirit, to be pneumatic, spirit-led. And my body, when in submission to the spirit, gets to experience the life of God. It is in order. It's passions become ordered. My desires become ordered. And the principle of sin, of death, of evil in my flesh, mortifies, dies, even as I become alive to Christ. You can see it this way without becoming a Gnostic, anti-sex, etc., uh, etc. Et Fasting mortifies the flesh, but it doesn't 
elevate a Gnostic reading of the body. The body is a beautiful gift and is in its best form when in submission to the spirit. We are designed to be spirit-led. Dude, I'm climbing out of my chair. That is so good. I want people to go back and listen because there's so, so much nuance in what you just said. Maybe I'll just try to riff on for a second because this is huge. The body, well, what's going on with that? Well, look at a book like The Body Keeps the Score, which, you know, I have a centrist opinion on, uh, and say, but there's some very valuable stuff in Jim Wilder. If you haven't read Renovated yet, please go do that. Uh, and he describes iniquity as deformity, which he also gets from Willett, describing our fallen nature as our deformed condition. And so the, the flesh you can describe as the whole pattern of broken impulses and habits and desires and shattered nature encoded and centered in our body. And by the way, the world loves the flesh because the flesh keeps us from maturing into the full nature of Christ, from actually being free. So the world does not differentiate between real desire to be with God and the desires of the flesh, you know, to sleep by, with that woman who just walked by you or to be really famous or to be like Donald Duck and swim and, or is it Daffy Duck who swims in the moat of gold coins and... This is like 90s pop culture references. That's uh, Mick Scrooge. Mick Scrooge, yeah, Mick Scrooge. And so we'd say, okay, natural powers, what does that mean? Let's talk about the pattern of broken impulses and habits and desires centered in the body that all manner of writers riff on that, that is trained out and healed and restored over time. You know, it's like the word salvation goes back to salve, like literally to like put a bandage on something. The word salvation in Greek is the same word for to heal. So God healed the man and then, you know, salvation is all one concept. And it's like, it's, it is the healing, Christ healing things, setting them back in order. And screw tape letters that wonderful work. In the second chapter, after the patient, in quotes, becomes a Christian, screw tape, the elder demon goes, don't despair, because right now, all of the man's habits are still in your favor. Which is just what he, the natural reactivity, what a person does. And so, and the amazing thing, you know, there's a language in Papua New Guinea, which has like 700 languages, so of course there's at least one. Uh, <laughs> where the word for hunger is the fear that you've been abandoned Oof. and go, so, which is as much to say. So the pattern of broken impulses centered in the body. I feel hungry, but I don't just feel hungry. I feel like I've been abandoned. Reactively, I feel fear. I also feel shame. Those things have not yet experienced the light of God, where there are things I need to repent of, like trying to save myself. There are things that I need to be healed from, like being abandoned, that I just need to receive the love of God in that place. If the flesh, in its amity, in its friendship with the world, is allowed to run the show, you get things like hangry being a joke. Well, man, he's just angry when he's hungry. Go like, that's not okay. That's putting the self 
at the center of the world, which says, no one would expect you to be nice if you were hungry. <laughs> you never have to be someone who can feel hungry while also feeling totally secure in the love of God, which would take time. And you would have to engage the practices of the student to become like that. So the flesh, man, like the body's not bad, but our selfhood centered in the body and all of our inherited iniquities, generational sin, deformity, the shattered places in us that haven't received the love of God, all of that working together is the system of the flesh. That, if it is allowed to run the show, leads to gratification that provides no relief and only further brokenness and a propping up of the self that only brings more destruction. So obviously Anthony and I feel passionate about this because we both gave a speech in response to the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, there's so much more to say about it too. I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians, I just looked it up, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And some of the translations, I'm not sure what the actual term is, but discipline, some are less euphemistic and more like I beat my body this is an admonition of the ascetic lifestyle in a balanced way that is in order with all of God's provision for you. So not a, I mean, you can go pretty far in the wrong direction with asceticism. And yet, things like fasting, things like other disciplines that bring your flesh into submission to the Spirit, this is one of the great provisions of God for you in being a person who's in a body that is yet to be resurrected. Another thought here in regards to the flesh, I believe we are always on a trajectory, either toward deification, toward theosis, or toward becoming more and more animalistic. And I use that term on purpose, and throughout, there are allusions to people becoming more and more like beasts of the earth, especially beasts in a world that is experiencing the curse that we brought into the world. So we become more and more like animals, in our bodies as we are subject to the passions of our bodies and not to the spirit within us. And a great apocalyptic example of this would be King Nebuchadnezzar growing talons and shaggy hair and eating grass and becoming like a beast as a judgment on his rebellion against God before he is restored. That being the picture of the destiny of all people as we live according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. But then on the other side, the positive side of that, we become more and more like God. And the positive pictures are a body kneeling before God and worshiping, taking into your body the communion elements, receiving the physical healing of God, all the ways in which our bodies are part of our encounter with Jesus. I'm going to hit you with a working definition of the flesh here that maybe we can come back to over time. But out of this conversation, I'm going to call it the whole system of broken impulses, habits, deformities, and inordinate desires that are centered in the body and shaped by sin and iniquity in the world and the devil that lead a person further from God into fragmentation and darkness.
<laughs> Did you just write that? Yeah. Very nice. I Let's put that in our theological dictionary that we're writing. <laughs> um, speaking of system, the Catholics, another shout out to the Catholic Church, have done a fantastic service to the church by actually systematizing and categorizing the ways in which the flesh gets out of order. The ways in which its disposition is against the image of God when not in subject to the spirit. And so what I'm talking about are the seven deadly sins. And I'm going to add one to it. I have found looking to the list of the deadly sins to be a great help to me in pursuing my own restoration and seeking God for my own restoration. So at times... I'll be experiencing the consequences of sin in my own life, of disorder, of the flesh being out of order with the spirit in my own life. I won't be exactly sure what's wrong. And so sometimes I will go to a list of Catholic vices and actually just read descriptions of them, ones that are written meditatively and wisely. And that has been a great source of clarity for me to even know how to pray, God, I confess this to you and ask you for restoration in this area. So the seven deadly sins are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. And one that often gets thrown into the group is acedia, which it's very important to me to include that, maybe just because that's one of the chief deadly sins my flesh is prone to. But acedia being a deep existential boredom and listlessness and aimlessness and something like that. These terms, if you just hear them, might not necessarily be super helpful, but a book I'll point you to is Peter Crave's Back to Virtue, Traditional Moral Wisdom from Modern Moral Confusion. Importantly, he misses, I think, a lot of the, the narrative that we've been talking about and the context of the great spiritual war that we're in and so on. But as a book that compares and contrasts the vices and the virtues, so the vices being these deadly sins and others, and the virtues as being the positive qualities that the Spirit brings, it has been super instructive for me to look into that and in my mind have a framework for vice and virtue. And by the way, the flesh, its whole system being expressed as being a slave to sin, who the product of which is death. Well, you know, that verse, which is in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. I always read that as in like, if you sin, God gives you death. The word wages there is meat, meaning the thing paid to soldiers. And it goes, if you serve sin, it gives you death to eat. If you serve God, you get eternal life. And riffing on that, I'm going to let the Pope, John Paul II, have our, my last word on the flesh here before the world, because it's just so good. He writes, Paul's words written to the Romans, quote, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And the scripture, introduce us again into the rich and differentiated sphere of the meanings which the term body and spirit have for Paul. However, the definitive meaning of that enunciation is advisory, exhortative, and so valid for the evangelical work. When Paul speaks to the necessity of putting to death the deeds of the body with the help of the Spirit, Paul expresses precisely what Christ spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, appealing to the human heart and exhorting it to control desires, even those expressed in a man's look at a woman for the purpose of satisfying the lust of the flesh. 
This mastery, or as Paul writes, putting to death the works of the body with the help of the spirit, is an indispensable condition of life according to the spirit. That is, of the life which is an antithesis of the death spoken about in the same context. Life according to the flesh has death as its fruit. It involves as its effect the death of the spirit. Before we leave the subject of the flesh, a couple more words just to add to our shared vocabulary in talking about sin. We were talking earlier, at some point in the recording of this podcast, we paused and went for a walk, and we were talking about how in the Old Testament, there are a few words describing what's translated as sin, and then in the New Testament, there are upwards of 30, many of which are just derivations of the same root word, but still, it's really helpful to to realize that there is a much larger vocabulary in the scripture for human brokenness and being out of order and rebellion than just the word sin. And these terms can help us in understanding what's being talked about. So, three words. Also, we're going to link to a great video series by the Bible Project called the Bad Words series, in which they kind of distill these three concepts into transgression, sin, and iniquity. And I think there's probably a very educated, well-read reason to kind of lump all the words into these three concepts. It covers a lot of ground in regards to human sin. So transgression, breaking relationship with God, with other people. Iniquity, I typically think about it just as brokenness, but specifically in the shared emergent way, like the iniquity of your fathers coming to you and Things like that. And then finally, sin as being failing to achieve a goal, missing the target. All these we could do deeper word studies on. I'll mention hamartia, hamartia, as the Greek word in the New Testament that's probably most commonly translated as sin. And you can picture an archer aiming at a target and missing the mark, just doing the wrong thing. All that to say there is... I was joking with someone the other day and saying like humankind has found so many ways to fail that we need a much larger vocabulary than the word sin to really give the full picture of what's going on. And hamartia, hamartia, the Greeks love their hard teas, is present in epic literature. If you've ever studied the Iliad or something such, they always talk about it as the fatal flaw. What is the hero's hamartia? What's their problem? Which is a great way of tying those together because it means to miss, but it carries the weight of this fatal flaw that we can't quite separate ourselves from without significant outside help. I believe our final category, which I guess this list of world, flesh, and Satan, we could describe as origins of evil in the world. I'm not sure. Sources of rebellion and brokenness. Anyways, our final stop on this journey is the world. What is the world, Blaine? Let me just start with some verses, most of which are from what are called the general epistles, which are the second temple steeped writings of the New Testament. Here's 1 John 2, 15 to 18. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Here's Jesus, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Here's Romans 12, 2. Not a general epistle. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And then one more from 1 John 5, 19, 19, that was weird we were saying that, but we'll leave it. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I have to throw in one of my favorite examples, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's not a uh, traditional Ash Wednesday reading, but for all Ash Wednesday liturgies I write, I include that last passage because that captures the spirit of Ash Wednesday to me. Anyways, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Is enmity with God. And you you get those things looped into it, the desires of the flesh, which we talked about. The lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. I'm going to try a working definition at the beginning that's quite short. It's just a system of salvation that works by gratifying the flesh, located in the self at the expense of everyone and everything else. And I've heard it called recently the kingdom of noise. Ooh. I was thinking in terms of kingdom, the world being the amalgamation of all the false gospels, false kingdoms, places that we try to find salvation, satisfaction, and the whole of humankind in rebellion against God, in partnership with the enemy, just the whole emergent out there that we can either enter into in a conformist way or withdraw from into the kingdom of God, that we come into as exiles bringing God's kingdom, or we come into as adulterous people participating with that whole system. Yeah, and emergent being a really important concept here that is from philosophy. It works like this. I'm guessing that you and your few closest friends have a culture. There are jokes you tend to make. There are things you tend to talk about. And if someone, you know, were to come up and talk to you while you were with your two or three closest friends, they would have an experience of a little society. And if they asked, who built this? You would have to say, none of us. As we related, 
This was the fruit of our relationship, and that's supposed to be a good thing. We're supposed to fill the world with creativity and life and culture as the product of our relationship. But we don't do that. We do the opposite. So the product of broken trust and inherited deformity and sinful relationship and all of it getting so big that no one can control it, yet we're all caught up into it, that would be a good way to understand the world. And the world, the world loves, like I said, speaking to the flesh because it makes you a slave. It makes you a slave. And the world is is fundamentally opposed to Jesus. Which is why friendship, being on great terms and being in and being a part of the world, is described as being God's enemy because these two entities, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, are in competition for the future. We must take seriously James' words that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Because the more comfortable we are in the world, the more likely it is we should perceive that as a symptom of friendship with the world. I think the more that we are following Jesus, living in the way of Christ, living in the called out, prophetic, weird um, way of the church, the less comfortable we will be in the world. And I think Christians spend an incredible amount of energy and creativity and time justifying our friendship with the world, uh, explaining it away, trying to find ways to reduce our cognitive dissonance with the contrast between claiming allegiance to Jesus but wanting to be okay in the world. Because there's a cost to forsaking friendship with the world and really following Jesus. Now, this isn't some call to withdrawing totally from the world. I used the word withdraw earlier in a particular way, but this isn't a call to retreat from the world, but to learn that the kingdom of God really is different and actually opposed to all the kingdoms of mankind, and that we show up in whatever country, in whatever culture, in whatever society, in whatever town that we're in, not as friends of the world in ways in which we are complicit in that system, but as mustard seeds that are surreptitiously growing into the world, that are permeating it with an alternative system. Now, it's generous. It's not using human hegemonic powers, our tools of oppression. So it doesn't look like how human kingdoms invade and take over other human kingdoms. Nonetheless, there really is enmity between the world and the kingdom of God. The reason I use the term mustard seeds is I think uh, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed, we, lacking the botanical knowledge of the mustard plant and the place the mustard plant occupied in the Jewish mind, don't get the joke. But you, you actually should imagine people going teehee, people chuckling in response to Jesus saying that. Because in certain Jewish towns, precincts, the mustard seed was actually outlawed in gardens because it would grow underground and pop up and show up in your neighbor's garden and you couldn't get rid of it. It was like kudzu. So it's almost like saying the kingdom of the heavens is like kudzu. It's an invasive... Or a dandelion Yes, seed. or freaking dandelions, which are the bane of my existence. Uh, my neighbor keeps saying, oh, they're just pretty flowers. I'm like, I know I should see it the way that you see it, but I can't. I have to get rid of them um, or make wine out of them. But anyways... The point being that the kingdom of the world is 
uh, as the joke goes, more like an invasive species, and yet it brings blessing. We need to come to terms with what are the ways in which I am pursuing friendship with the world at the cost of friendship with God. All the obvious ways are pursuit of riches, our entanglement in the capitalistic system that we're in, which, guess what, is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. Not to recommend communism or anything else, the kingdom of God provides its own economic system that is different than all the human systems. And so our pursuit of mammon, our pursuit of material wealth, our engagement with the culture of the world and maybe we justify it by saying, oh, I need to stay relevant, so I'm going to watch this movie. I've used that one many times. And yet, actually, what we find all of a sudden is that we wake up and we're suddenly friends with the world and our flesh is stirring up in enmity with God and we have to do some repenting. The list goes on forever. The point that we spend a lot of time justifying ourselves is well made in the introduction to David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, which I wish I had brought with me. And I'm not willing to buy the Kindle version right now because I hate locked media. But he makes this point. He says a lot of people ask him, hey, David, what have you learned from translating the New Testament um, in the way that you did? And he says, the overwhelming lesson is that Christians go through the most agile, flexible, brilliant gymnastics, jumping through hoops, through flaming hoops and doing incredible creative turns of logic to avoid coming face to face with the fact that God really calls us to submit our economy, our money, and our economic lives to him in a way that does not look like the rest of the world. The New Testament's proclamations against riches, for instance, all throughout the various epistles and the gospels, we just go through incredible efforts to avoid coming face-to-face with, and the number of people I've talked to, including myself, I've had to repent out of this, where in response to anything that challenges how you live, how you engage with the world, how the way that you live and your values look just like the rest of the world, if in response to any given verse or to me talking about how the New Testament has a lot to say about riches and we should take it seriously, if your first reaction is to say, yeah, but, then you're missing the point. I'm not telling you what you should do in response to the Holy Spirit's conviction, but don't start with saying, yeah, but, and then figuring out some way to be comfortable with the way you're currently living. Dude, this gets me. I'm just, for example, here is 1 Timothy 6, verses 2b to 6-ish. These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. And, you know, uh, referring to a section that was on the life of the people of God. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and they trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Lord have mercy. We take this seriously and to put some of our own story into the mix here, we are, Lord willing, putting our money where our mouth is, where our mouths are. I don't know. We are, Lord willing, trying to live this out. And as an example, for me, some of my story involves growing up fairly poor, experiencing a lot of poverty, working pretty hard to find a way to make a lot of money, figuring that out finally and achieving some good goals in terms of annual incomes and things like that. Thinking that I wasn't prone to being led astray by material possessions, thinking that I was kind of immune to this, and that I simply wanted to get a lot of money because I thought I would be a good person to steward it for kingdom purposes. And yet finding rather quickly that certain phrases would pop up in my head, looking at other people a certain way, or trying to signal my own wealth in a certain way, or whatever it is, or just feeling more safe and comfortable and happy and at peace because of getting a certain monthly paycheck and building a business that can make a certain amount of money and so on. All that to say, in all these nuanced ways, I found myself being led astray into friendship with the world and worship of mammon. And it happened so subtly. And my journey over the last year and a half has been marked by letting go of a lot of income, letting go of a business that was making really good money and a job that was making really good money and pursuing the work that I felt like God was calling me to. A lot of that is right here in this podcast and in the work of Mount Vigil. And spending a whole year struggling with the slow death of my flesh, the slow submission of my flesh to the Spirit, because I did not want to let go of riches. I did not want to have to pay a price to follow Jesus. I didn't want to pay the cost of discipleship. And I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to become a priest, a saint, a wise man, a person who can bear the image of God to the point of theosis without having to pay any price. And I wanted to have all the friendship with the world I want and get to live the way I wanted, but also achieve all of the spiritual gains. And it wasn't working. And uh, God is providing but it doesn't look the way that I thought I wanted it to. Dude, this hurts to hear you talk about. God is providing, question mark? (laughs) God. This, the current stories right now of recognizing how much the world and the flesh, hopefully to a lesser extent the devil, but certainly the world and the flesh are mixed up in me and our friend Tim one time talking about the work of life together and he said the it was essentially the purifying fire is coming we all get to stand in the good holiness of God the opportunity right the problem is that good and evil aren't just out there they're mixed up in us and some of the work right now is the separating out of those things the separating out of my friendship with the world and my flesh so that I can move towards what I most want and that, so that my experience of God, who is good and loving and all good things, is actually positive. It was, you know, St. Ignatius Loyola, 
who said essentially, sin is the refusal to believe that what God wants for me is my greatest happiness. And again, this is a very brilliant man. And so there is a lot of thought. That is not a simple phrase. Those words, you know, you can't slap that on a black background and post it on social media and have it make sense. I think that's the best definition of sin I've ever heard. It just, it gets to the root of so much. So much of the resent, resistance to God, even the resentment of God. The world is this intoxicating, deceptive soothsayer voice you're hurting come this way you want to be significant you are significant you deserve to be heard get an instagram account become an influencer you want intimacy you should be allowed to google any person's name click on a web page and look at photos of their children yeah like you matter come with me i'll help you while on the other hand there's the spirit you know, it's Gerard Manley Hopkins' line, and yet for all this, the glory of God is never spent. And he's looking at the world in that poem, God's Grandeur. Um, and there's this sense that we really do, we're made for union with God. And as that desire is stoked, it's what we most want. It is the best thing. And as we were sitting we said this in the last episode, but as we were sitting with that 70-year-old saint, he was just saying, at regular intervals in the life of the disciple of Jesus, things that are not bad in and of themselves are set in opposition to a life with God so that the desires can stay rightly ordered in you, where authority is not a bad thing, right? And... Uh, I, I'm more convinced that money, the philosophical category, is bad, but resources are not bad. And resources are a good thing. Influence is a neutral thing. It's not bad to have that. And yet, just I'm just going to say, in your life with God, they will regularly be set in opposition with each other for my salvation. And right now, yes, money and fame in the season I'm in have recently just been set as an alternative, even financial security, just set as an alternative to the invitation of Jesus, who I want more. And the decision is, will I, it's very hard to try to sort, figure out what's worldly in me and separate from it. It's very hard to look at a list of movies showing at the area theater and decide which ones are worldly and which ones are not. <laughs> What's the moral content? Read the, you know, nonprofit webpage and see <laughs> if I can go see that movie. It's much more straightforward to look for Jesus and his way, move into it. And I know that what is world, worldly in me will be exposed in due time and what's really kind of God is he doesn't do it all at once. I feel like I'm in an apocalypse right now of I am an overworked, overcommitted person who thinks that working harder and hurrying will eventually save me into a wealthy future. And be like, uh, 
no one could have told me that just before experiencing. Try to move with God in the simplicity. Oh my gosh, I can't do it. What do I do now? So to wrap up here, my final thoughts for today on the subject of the falls, the problem of sin, all the things we've been talking about. I want to encourage you that the problem of sin and Christianity's response to it is not just a matter of behavior modification. The story of following the way of Christ isn't one of, these things are bad, don't do bad things. This isn't a materialist religion that simply serves some evolutionary purpose to preserve the propagation of the species, to maintain balance in society and limit violence or anything like that. This isn't a materialist problem. The problem of sin is in the context of the cosmic story of God. And what we're talking about is so much more amazing and adventurous and beautiful, and it's a much better story than that of behavior modification. The problem of sin is about losing our ability to image the Holy Trinity and to carry out our divine purpose into eternity. I think in regards to the world, the enemy, and the flesh, we spend most of our time ignorant in regards to spiritual warfare because we read things as materialists when we should be in constant prayer. And we spend most of our time frustrated by other sin when we should be mourning the log in our own eye. And we spend most of our time judging others for their friendship with the world while justifying our own. Three practices, three balms that the way of Christ offers to you, three provisions, three graces, I want to recommend to you are, one, confession. Confession, especially in the non-Catholic, non-Orthodox streams of Christianity, being a very forgotten, neglected practice, sacrament, doctrine, I encourage you to seek out trustworthy, wise, gospel-carrying elders in your church, whoever has permission and authority in your life. I encourage you to regularly confess your sins and before God in your own relationship with God to practice confession. It is a great comfort to come before your Father and say, I confess to you, Father, that I have been, in my case, let's say, I have been letting my flesh steer the ship. I've been living in acedia and neglecting your call to partner with you in stewarding the earth and bringing your kingdom into the world and leading in my community. Confession is a wonderful practice. And then repentance is what comes after confession. Repentance is changing your mind, is following Jesus in the way forward that he provides to you to actually turn from your sins to whatever way he is making for you. Confession and repentance, it's so basic as to, as to feel kind of cliche maybe, but it is the way forward. And then the third practice I'll recommend to you is that of forgiveness, because all of these things aren't just our part in generating sin in the world, but we experience the consequences of other people's sin in our own lives. And so one of the ways to be free of the consequences of sin in the world and brokenness, iniquity, is to forgive other people. I won't go into a full explanation of the doctrine of forgiveness and of all the caveats around it, but I'll say it's one of the essential practices in the Christian walk that will bring you into freedom and joy and a lightness that you may never have experienced before. And my short definition of forgiveness is turning over debts that other people owe to us to God. And rather than trying to receive recompense from other people, we look to God for the blessings that we need.
That's so good. My closing thought is that if you have ever been in a school, you know, sometimes our church for large gatherings rents a space in a school here in Colorado Springs, and I was downstairs with the kids the other day, and I was just noticing that almost all schools have an active shooter plan slash fire plan on the wall by the door. And it's like, if you hear gunshots, lock the door, close the blinds, turn out the lights, do this, call 911 if, and then it works through like the run, hide, fight framework. And it, these warnings, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the descent into darkness at the fall, like, you know, these things have been specifically addressed in the work of Jesus, which we're about to get into in depth, and we need to take hold of that. The way of taking hold of that is the active shooter plan of the church. So these are like the gunshots in the background, the ghosts of old witch kings. Nazgul are a thing. Oh, the flesh, the disordered desire, the iniquity. What should I do? We should familiarize ourselves with the word didache. Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and many are added to the number of those saved. Acts 2.42, you probably in your Bible, it's broken up and there's probably like a heading above it, the fellowship or the life of the church or something. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The apostles' teaching, the didache, which is what Paul is talking about when he says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. How do you live? And some of the territory that I, that I am getting into more deeply right now that our church is getting into right now is if the way to thrive in a significant time is either to double down on the way of Jesus if you're going for it or if you're more like me just finally really go for it you'll be inter become interested in things that the church has called like a rule of life and how that works with the spiritual disciplines I've sort of been and I'm actually I'm going to make Anthony throw into the show notes. There is, we sent it out in the newsletter. There's a sermon that John Mark Comer gave on this that is just so good. It's better than what I would say. He did a great job explaining what a rule of life is and how to begin thinking of one for yourself, how to begin exploring it. Not for nothing do the Ruth Haley Bartons and the spiritual directors and the Eugene Petersons and the people who try to help others walk out of life with God, talk a lot about this. The, the pattern of activity that's chosen with intentionality over time to make more space in your life to receive the love of God, to be with God, to become like him. And as that happens, our enmeshedness with the world gets exposed and we get to deal with it. So the things that, you know, Anthony was just sharing are vital, vital parts of the didache, of the apostles' teaching. That's why they're in the letters of the apostles, to forgive, to confess, to do this stuff, and to live, to live this way. So the, the very natural question in me to the story of evil in the world is, what should be done? Well, the next thing you need to know is what Jesus has done. 
hopefully you know, at least in part, Jesus' work directly addresses these issues. And it's out of what Jesus has done that we then learn, okay, and then what do we do now? Great, those are exactly the next two questions. In the meantime, I would say, do the things that Anthony has said, and we're going to send you off to a different resource on thinking through, beginning to think about the rule of life and, and how you live in order to actually be saturated with the presence and the love and the delight and the security of God so that you can operate in an environment that is as intense as the one we've just described. A final note, perhaps a bonus for those that have stuck with us through three plus hours of recording. One of the things that Blaine and I do is visit leaders to help them navigate leading groups through the times that we are in. So if you lead a church, if you lead a small gathering, a community of families, whatever it is, and you're looking for help and understanding how do I read the times that I am in, how do I lead my people in the times that we're in, anything along those lines, we'd love to come visit you and pray for you, just be a sounding board for helping you process the questions that you have of God right now. If that sounds interesting to you, A, pray about it. First pray before reaching out and see if that's a thing God has for you, perhaps. And then feel free to email us, hello at mountvigil.org, and we'll get back to you.